This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Hope you're ready for another great day as you... Uh, are out and about. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your life coach, your guide on the side. You know, we're all born into this great world, and yet uh, many of us, you know, we don't have access to the latest tools, information, the things we need to make better life choices. So we bring it to you every day, Monday through Friday, 9 to noon, uh, to help you along. We're here. We'll laugh a little bit. We'll uh, give you the latest and greatest research. Today, by the way, we're going to be talking about the state of the U.S. forests, which is a big deal. Apparently, a lot of them are burning right now. They're on fire. But which is, that's just what we do in July. In July, yeah. we just burn everything. That's nature's way of, uh, you know, taking care of itself. All those hotshot firefighters, the guys, mm-hmm. they drop into those terrible situations. Hotshot are their names. They're, yes, they're not, not a description Yeah, we're not are. disparaging them. That's what yeah. they're termed as. But what are they going to do all summer? Right. This is it. Fight, slide down the pole. If you ever slid down that pole, it's a lot of fun. It's tons of fun. Forest fires are nature's loofah. Well, unless there's some guy with a blowtorch who just decides to set a fire. Yeah, then there's that guy. Which happened. The guy walking around with the blowtorch starting little fires. Oops. Ah, The state of U.S. forests. By the way, I did not know that uh, a lot of our forests, a high percentage of our forests, are privately owned. Owned by families. Oh, wow. Did you know that? No. What are they doing with it? They're 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 like foresting. Swiss they're Family taking Robinson down or? trees, and they produce hundreds of billions of dollars of goods. Lumber, lumber. They employ a lot of people. Hmm. That's why that pole is there too, because they've got kids that you know want to slide down. Yeah, yeah. But this is wood. Wood's harder to slide down. I think I'm really in the mood to slide down a pole. I don't you know, know why what? I keep bringing uh, it up. Having just visited, not just, but about a year ago, visiting a fire station, they don't let you slide down the pole anymore. What? Uh, I'm sure a bunch of kids blew their ankles out and, uh, you know, on little retreats and the fire department's now saying we're not doing that anymore. The, the fire mm. department, they'll slide down the pole. But the rest of you take the stairs. That's some, just some selfish. Some don't have a pole. That's selfish. Yeah, totally selfish. That's our taxpayer dollars. Speaking of uh, selfish, um, I went to the Osmonds last night, Donnie and Marie. They, they've still got it. Really? It was really an awesome show. Hmm. Uh why did you say, hmm? Just general, hmm. Well, you should say, like, tell me about it. It's fantastic. Oh, oh, please, go on. I, I don't want to get in the way of this 55 years story. these two have been going at it. Okay. 55 years. Uh-huh. Andy Williams show. Right. 55 years of a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. May explain my tepid response. Yeah. Like, hmm. It was, honestly, it was really good. And can I just say? I've been to a Donnie Marie and the entire family concert. Have you? Yeah, my response was, huh. No, it was awesome. And they sang all of these really cool current pop hit songs. Come on, you were mesmerized by his they, locks. They said, Look at those locks. Is this Marie? Is this nope. auto-tuned? That's Donnie. That's Is this just a chipmunk version of this 10 song? 10 or 12, 14. But honestly, they sang this, and by, I'm telling you, when he started singing this, a thousand women just started screaming. Women, women of a certain age. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes, I mean, absolutely. crazy. Like, yeah. they were screaming. wonder what kind of hair product he uses. I don't know, but he, he's got great volume. No, but Donny Osmond is in great shape. Holy cow. Because right. they were, this was like their Vegas show mm. on the road. 
and they were dancing like crazy. Except, I think our altitude got to him and the heat because he was outside, hot and humid a little. And they're yesterday. wearing he's like wearing a suit. So, yeah. but boy, he's he's in great shape. So she, she, they're in great shape. Huh. I just want I'm just putting that out there that if if you haven't been on the Donny Osmond Marie Osmond, you know, bandwagon lately, you got to get on ever. Honestly, cool thing. Uh, we sat behind. We were on the grass, so you could just lay. It was down. a grassy knoll. If you a, we were on the grassy knoll, yeah. But the Osmond grandkid, his grandkids were there. His son was there, and it's really cool to see the grandkids watch their grandpa. Huh. It's amazing. The kids were dancing, and they knew all the songs. They knew the words. By the Super way, cool. This is still Donnie, not Marie. Still Donnie. He's hitting those high notes pretty well, though. Not, yeah, not the chipmunks. Honestly, it was a great show. So check them out in Vegas. They're in Vegas. They're one of the top shows in Vegas. Usually just drive through Vegas. Yeah, you just go to... I'll, well, I'll look at his billboard, though. No, but you'll stop. You'll want to stop for that. Family family fun. You family can't really, entertainment. You can't really stop on the freeway, though. It's dangerous. Well, no, you get right. off. Get yeah. off the freeway. So uh, we'll be talking everything from Forrest to Osmonds, of course. Oh, there's more Osmonds? Well, I got... Well, there are a lot I'll of have, Osmonds. I'll have a lot well, I know of there's stories. several Osmonds. They talked. They, they got in a really interesting feud about Dancing with the Stars. A feud. Donnie put uh, Marie down because Ooh. she came in second on Dancing with the Stars. Mm. He came in first place. Oh well, hey. And then she, her retort was, "Well, yeah, but men in Dancing with the Stars, men do very little dancing. Mm. They kind of just hold the woman's waist while the women do all the dancing." Oh wow. There are a lot it was more a big battle. They, it was they a really, battle. they really got down to the details yeah. there. Oh, yeah. and then she talked about what happened to Donnie on. Dancing with the Stars. Oh. He pulled a muscle, and he needed surgery. Ooh. Oh, wow. And the muscle was in his gluteus maximus. Con- or it was actually his gluteus minimus. It's a contact sport. Yeah. Was Pete there? Pete Osmond? Or Dave? Uh, How about Sh- Tito? Was Shep? Tito there? Tito was there, yeah. Tito, Tito's the. I think Tito's the most popular Osmond. And then there's LaToya. Mm-hmm. LaToya Osmond. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wait, now we're blending families. And then Jimmy. I think Jimmy, Jimmy was cleaning up after. All right. It was pretty cool. Good stuff. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? A U.S. judge on Tuesday ruled that the government cannot immediately deport nearly 200 Iraqi immigrants last uh, arrested last month who argued that they would face persecution if they were removed from the country. U.S. District Judge Mark Goldsmith in Michigan said that uh, he had the authority to order the government to keep the Iraqis in country while their deportation cases were reviewed by the courts. In his ruling, Goldsmith said sending the Iraqis back now would expose them to a substantial risk of death, torture, or other grave persecution before their legal claims can be tested in court. Many of the 199 Iraqis detained, largely in Detroit, but also in Tennessee, New Mexico, and California, were Chaldean Catholics and Iraqi Kurds. Both groups said they could be attacked for their... Uh, because they are visible minorities in that country. Not, wow. Not necessarily popular in the I mean, country, they, need, so. they need to get out. Yeah. And so, we're pushing them back. That's hmm. on, on hold until they can figure out that. The United States, has, for the first time, successfully carried out an intermediate-range missile intercept test using the thermal... Or no, anyway, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System, known as THAAD. THAAD! The horrible name for a missile defense system. I think that's another, so, another Osman, too. It's another Osman, yeah. U.S. Missile Defense Agency uh, uh, carried out the test. The intermediate-range uh, ballistic missile target was launched by a U.S. Air Force C-17 aircraft over the Pacific. Mm. The THAAD system shot it out of the sky. It was located at a Kodiak, Alaska, if you were wondering where there. Our missile systems are. I don't know if we need to put that in the media. This test marks the 
19th successful test. That system is currently deployed in South Korea, and of course, North Korea is launching missiles every couple days. Yeah, right. So now we have... Missile update. We have bullets shooting out bullets at high altitude. Do, you, do they have to make up an acronym for everything? <laughs> but bad. Yeah. Thanks, guys. If uh, they can agree who goes first, Paris and Los Angeles will be awarded the 2024 and 2028 Olympics. Hmm. International Olympic Committee members voted unanimously to seek a consensus three-way deal between the two bid cities and the IOC executive board. Uh, the talks will open in Paris, widely seen as the favorite for the 2024. If a deal falls through... Only the 2024 hosting rights will be voted on when the IOC meets in September in Peru. However, an agreement seemed assured by the reaction of the two mayors. Eric Garcetti of L.A. and Anne Hidalgo of Paris emerged on stage holding hands to welcome the decision. A deal is also likely because head-to-head fight for the 2024 would create a loser that is unlikely to return four years later for 2028. So the Olympics wants to secure both. Then they have a decade of stability moving forward. And they don't want any sore losers, the ones that don't return. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So we'll see if Los Angeles gets the Olympics okay. again. Uh, JP Nadu might Who? not be the might not be the luckiest man alive, but he can certainly give an electrifying speech, as it says. The Canadian was speaking at his daughter's wedding in an apple orchard in Woodstock, New Brunswick. Waiting for the apple. There we go. On Saturday, when he was struck, he was struck by lightning. So he's giving a speech at his daughter's wedding, and he gets hit by lightning. Oh wow! The father got the groom. Uh, well, the father of the groom got up and said something, and then he it was my turn. to do said, "I got my mic from him, and I said, Adam, you are some lucky guy.' As soon as I did that, my daughter's eyes just popped out of her head because all of a sudden there was a lightning flash that hit right behind me. The power went through the mic cord, and it was oh, like boy. I had a bolt of lightning in my hand." Uh, he says, I felt the current go right through me, but it was it was my hand, and I, I was worried about because I'm a piano man. He goes, I want to keep playing. I don't care if I die, but I want to play the piano. <laughs> so That's mo- cool. Moments after the lightning strike, heavy downpour started. Guests ran for shelter. He was, the, uh, the father was shaken up and uninjured, part of his scorch mark on his thumb from where I guess he was holding the microphone yeah. and... Um, says the rest of the day went smoothly. People coming up to me wondering while I was still alive. Asked whether he could, uh, he thought he could have been a sign from above. Yeah. He Zeus. says there's a rumor that goes around that if rain or thunder on your wedding day, it's a good sign. That is really? crazy. Lightning strike. Well, I don't think lightning striking your father on your wedding day is a good sign. But he lives, so that's a good sign. I think Alanis Morissette yeah. said that too. Really? It's like rain on your wedding day. Did she say anything about lightning? It's like the good advice you just can't take. Hmm. Hmm. You're going to keep going? That's a whole song. No, because nothing in that song is really ironic. No, everything's just sort of... <laughs> As the name of the song suggests. Um, wasn't it Zeus that threw thunderbolts? Yeah. Lightning bolts? Uh-huh. Yeah. And in some way, the Flash. Yeah. He can toss some energy. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. But Zeus is a father. Zeus so the Flash. Oh, is he? Yeah. Oh, he's, he had he's, kids. Been around, he's been around forever. He says. Well, I didn't know. Kids. Yeah, I didn't know he I, had it, kids. It depends on which timeline he hasn't yeah. manipulated yet, because he can move through parallel universes. Never mind. It's a whole thing. Yeah, it is. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Hey, good news. Uh, if you were worried that Amelia Earhart's plane didn't crash, nope. Because of that picture, that there was a picture oh, that yeah, came yeah. out, right? And they. But and, you said if I was worried, I really wasn't worried. I, I pretty much assume it crashed. It, it doesn't worry you. 
You know, I'm, I'm assuming it crashed. You're talking about this photo. Yeah. That's now been discredited. Well, by it's now water. been discredited. She Because this photo came out and then they were starting to think that, boy, maybe she had actually survived her crash and then the Japanese maybe had taken her um, or some other story. But that the mystery photo that seemed to show her sitting on a dock with uh, her navigator. Sitting on a dock of a bay probably. Sitting on the dock of a bay. Um, you're not going to or... sing it? Come on. Come on. No. No? No. Okay. no. Uh, not, not after watching the Osmonds. Really? You can't you live can't up to that level. That. It was like, so back to this photo. Um, apparently the photo had been taken like eight years earlier, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, doesn't really relate to the story. I mean, not – we still don't know. We still don't know where so she went. So it was just a hoax. It, well – no, it's the, a real picture. It's just it was a misunderstanding the, of the dates. The Japanese blogger said he, he saw the photo and they immediately grabbed the book that I think he owns and went, "No, the photo's right here." Oh, and here's two the years date, earlier. The right? picture was taken two years earlier and was put in a Japanese coffee table book. Yeah. So the guy's like, "Why, why wouldn't something like the History Channel, which purports to have all these historians that are helping them put these yeah. this TV special together, why wouldn't they have?" Found this? He goes. I found it. It wasn't that hard. Well, because it's it's there's there's some value today in fake news, right? I mean, it's exciting. It, it is. I mean, think about this. This story got play. Oh yeah, was on every station. Everyone talked about it, and uh, it was wrong. I imagine everyone talked about it, and nobody watched the TV show, and mm-hmm. now we're all aha. That's right. See, that's the difference with this show. This show, we don't promise to be accurate. No, we don't even pretend. We just read stuff and go, huh. We Our goal is always to be first on the scene, fifth on the facts. The MT News Team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. What's with the apple all the time? Yeah. It's like an apple a day. And it's really crunchy. It's a very Sounds delicious. Crisp. Yeah, you, 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 mm. you, think like, you think maybe it would spoil after a while? I mean, we're, yeah. we're biting the same apple. No, it's a different apple. Is it a different yeah. apple? Where are they getting these it, apples? It's only one bite. Washington State. Occasionally, you run into a mealy apple. Kind of gross. <laughs> it's actually only one bite per apple. I think apple. every time we say that word, he pushes the button. Nice. Don't say the word. You you said that word, he reached for the button, and, I know he and he pulled back. And then I didn't, because like, well, he thought I was going to say the word, but right. I'm not, not going to say the word apple. So after your Osmond experience, what is your... Main sort of theme takeaway. What did okay. you learn from oh, the Oh, it's evening? very simple. Yeah. Um, have a lot of children. Okay. Mm-hmm. And get them singing. Right. And promote the crud out of them. Huh. So the Kardashian approach. Well, except with talent. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Forgot, know what I, mean? I don't mean the that in a rude part. way. Well, they, they kind of came across that way. And I, it might be deserving depending they, on – I mean, but the, I'm telling you. In fact, I was looking at – it's got to be hard to be like an Osmond child hmm. that loves music. Like these little grandkids that were just dancing and having so much fun. Right. But I don't know that you'll ever honestly beat the level of success as Donnie and Marie. And wherever They're you huge. go, wherever you go, people want you to sing. Oh, you're an Osmond, sing. Yeah. <sighs> sing and dance, Osmond What if you're boy? the Osmond that can't carry a tune? Well, they have those too. But then you become stage crew. So, did they have their real estate uh, opener? No, no. No. Honestly, the funny thing about it is they showed every star that they've performed with, and you would be blown away. Everybody. Sinatra, Elvis. No. 
Uh, Elvis? Like, was it Groucho Marx? Really? Honestly, everybody. He was, he was still Lucille alive Ball. when they got around. Yeah. Oh, my they, goodness. They've been at it 55 years. Wow. It's huge. I mean, all the way up to today's biggest stars. Celine Dion, but even bigger, Beyonce. I'm telling you. Whoa. Legit. So the, the, all those people were there last night at the concert. And our friend, the governor of Utah, Gary Herbert, made it Donnie and Marie Day. I'm telling you. It so, was huge. Man, what a lineup at that concert yeah, totally. last night. And it wasn't even that warm. I thought I was going to sweat my you know head out, but I, d- I didn't. I did take a little nap. During I, this song? I, no, this... No. You can't sleep during this song. This is their... This is the song. Mm. And Paper Roses. She sang her song, Paper Roses. Oh, boy. That just, you just melt with that one. Anyway... A little Donnie and Marie update for you. And his purple socks. He talked about that. That happens to be his least favorite song. The one that made his socks famous. Anyway. A little uh, trivia for you. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we're talking about the state of the U.S. forests. We'll be back. Stick with us. Utah's Bryan Head Forest Fire, once the biggest in the country, burned over 72,000 acres of land and forest. Currently, crews are still wrapping up and working on containment lines. This brings the question, how much value do U.S. forests actually contribute to the country? Here to speak with us today is Dr. D. Thomas Straka, a professor of forestry at Clemson University in South Carolina. Dr. Straka, thank you so much for your time today. I'm glad to be there. Uh, appreciate the invitation. You bet. Now, talk to us about. I mean, I don't think most of us even know. You know, what's the difference between like you know uh, the the U.S. Forest Service? Who owns the forests? Do all of the forest system belong to the citizens of the United States? Maybe just educate us a bit about the Forestry Service. I mean, or the U.S. Forest System. Well, uh, who owns the forest? Uh, it's the U.S. It's usually called the USDA Forest Service because it's the Department of Agriculture, and they own about twenty percent of wow. the national forest. In other words, uh, of both the forest. And let me give you two definitions to start with. I won't have many. Uh, I want to be talking about forest land, and that's just trees. Uh, trees are growing on land and timberland. Those are trees that are growing that you can make products out of. Okay. And there's a difference. There's about one-third of the United States land area is forest land, and about a quarter is timberland. A little, no less, you would think, because that's the better land. Hmm. And the difference is Utah's a good example. When you're riding along and you see that juniper and, and uh, pinion pine, uh, that isn't big enough to make lumber. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot yeah. of it is. That's the difference. Okay. It's still forest land, but that's not timberland. So timberland would just be the really tall trees that they could harvest and and make products out of. In general. Okay. That's a, that's a fair definition. Okay. Um, so if I use those terms, I, 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 they're not interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. You're actually saying timberland would be product driving. Forest land is, is, is land, property. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, actually, looking at trying to get my figures here in front of me, uh, I said the Forest Service owns twenty uh, percent of, of both, approximately. Uh, the um, 
that you started with a question I'm not ready for. <laughs> That's okay. okay. But so so twenty percent because I this is the big thing while you're looking for your numbers that I didn't understand. A lot of I guess forest and timberland is owned by private enterprise, private companies and families. Uh, Sixty percent. Wow. Uh, I mean it's it's. Um, uh, it's it's surprising. One of the big differences is is uh, private versus public. You hit hit on one of the main issues. I think the two big issues are east versus west, and then uh, the the public versus the private. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we we talk a lot about the east west battle because a lot of times in the west when we hear about wild uh, wild what do they call them wild lands or um, uh, just government owned property and lands, a lot of the West is frustrated because so much of the West is owned by the federal government. Uh, that's public versus private. Yeah. Uh, most of the, you know, you got forest in the East. And when I talk about the East, I'm talking about mainly the Northeast, the Lake States, and the South. Okay. Then you got the Great Plains in between, and the rest I'll call the West. And the West, I'll kind of lump in the Rocky Mountains and, and the Pacific Northwest. That's okay. where most of the trees are. And you, you, those two differences, east versus west, are a big one, and private versus public. Those, those are the the, the two main ones. Uh, looking at, I got some figures in front of me now. The uh, I mentioned. There's, I'll just give you a couple of real quick figures. There's about 766 million acres of forest land and about 500 million acres of timberland, hmm. and there's roughly two and a quarter billion acres in the United States. So the forest, I said, is about a third of the land area, and timberland is about 23%. Wow, yeah. So so roughly a, a third and a quarter. And you can divide it in the regions that that uh, 55% of that's in the east and 45% in the west. Hmm. Not not half and half, but... Yeah. And then you can go between, I won't go between regions and all, all that, but... Um, it can be deceptive, though, that, you know, that when you look at forest land or timberland, it's a little bit different. Uh, you look at uh, there's a lot of timberland just in certain areas of the country. Pacific Northwest, the South, is kind of the wood basket of the country. Um, so getting back to like, going back to my ownerships, who owns it? Because I guess, and this is while you're looking at that, this is this is big business, right? This is producing hundreds of billions of dollars of a value for the country. Yeah, um, in terms of, of economics, um, we're jumping around on figures, and I got them in front of me. But it's it's forty in forty seven states. Uh, you'll find that that forestry uh, timber is one of the top ten manufacturing sectors. People don't realize no. you know, it's a biggie. Um, it's uh, just got a huge, huge. Economic impact. Uh, let's see here. I got the figures, but it, I'll use South Carolina as an example. Yeah. Uh, in our state, it's it's twenty one billions uh, billion dollars. Uh, the Forestry Commission just just analyzed the uh, the industry, independent how you rank them. Do you throw in pulp and paper and lumber, and do you throw in furniture part of the wood? Uh, of course, they were aggressive trying to make forestry look good. It came out number one. Hmm. I, I don't know though, if that's fair, because but it compares very favorably with with uh, automobiles and plastics, and so it, it's right up there. And if you want to get tricky with the definitions, uh, you can you can uh, make forestry number one in South Carolina. 
Mm, it's uh, amazing. It's it's huge. No matter you know, you get into some Kansas doesn't have a big forest products industry. Right. Like In, Oregon, Washington, South Carolina, Maine, places like that. It's huge. In your article, it's a huge part of the country. In your article um, on in the conversation, you you stated that the forest products industry manufactures more than two hundred billion dollars worth of products yearly. I mean, this is why this is such an important resource to to be protecting and to be paying attention to. But what? So we have the east kind of the versus the west. We have the the privately owned versus the publicly owned. What are the big issues that the for these these different Issue that these different, uh, I guess the the um, the competition between East West, the competition between private public. What are the issues that those bring up? Well, you're right. The East versus the West comes into uh, the different different kinds of kinds of timber. Actually, in terms of regulation, you know, the, the South is is pretty open, very receptive to forest industry. Some of the other parts of the country aren't as receptive. Uh, California. Uh, it, it, it does make a difference where the lands are. But when the big difference is uh, the forests are divided between the east and the west, and most of the public forests are in the west. Most of the private forests are in the east. And if you look at where the, the timber comes from, then, that comes from the, from the east because that's private. Hmm. And, and what's happened, I can go back, and, and I've got a chart in front of me. There was a lot of timber produced in the, in the west, in the 60s up to the 70s. And the environmental movement came in, and justifiably there were some huge issues, clear-cutting. I yeah. mean, it was in forestry and the Bitterroot in, in, uh, in the West, in, the, in, in West Virginia forest, the National Forest. And justifiably, the public got a pretty bad view of clear-cutting. Uh, the environmentalists managed to get forest management on the National Forest pretty much curtailed. And it's... Uh, so now, when you start looking between the two, the fact that there's a lot of public land in the West means timber production has gone way down. You can go to a lot of towns. You're probably familiar with If you know anything yeah. about there were a lot of timber towns, towns. in the West. Yeah, going out of business. Forks, Washington. I, I, I went there one time on a vacation, just happened to be there. Decimated. Hmm. Uh, that's because they, they stopped timber production off, off surrounding lands. Uh, so a big difference in the West is... Uh, Due to environmental pressure, uh, some a lot of it justified. Uh, the forest management, the timber harvesting went down, and that contributed. I'm going to back up to your wildfires. Yeah. Uh, the wildfires. Part of the problem is there's a huge amount of, of biomass. I'll just use a general term. Uh, just a lot of wood out there that can burn, and there's two big reasons I think. One is, and we can fault the Forest Service. There were huge fires about a hundred years ago. Huge. Uh, even I mean bigger than today, yeah, and and killed some people, and 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 the Forest Service adopted a policy of uh, put it out as quick as you can, you know, that you know it's Smoky Bear, right, and the fire towers, and that was probably a bad policy because uh, that that let it that let the growing stock, the biomass accumulate a lot of underbrush, a huge amount of underbrush, and so you've got. I call it poor forest management, just letting that happen, because the natural process is for those forests to burn. They've always burned. And if you get them, when you don't let the biomass get to be at the levels they're at now, they don't burn that hot, and they're not that dangerous. And the other thing is the curtailed forest management. If you have the clear-cutting, not even clear-cutting, just cutting the stands, that's taking timber volume out. Well-managed forest stands don't tend to burn. 
So we've got poorly managed stands because of the shift in the public sentiment, uh, public pressure, environmental oh, interesting. to stop the harvest. So that between the two factors, you've got a huge amount of biomass out there, and it burns. But see, and I, in Utah, you just got done talking about No, absolutely. And I didn't even – and maybe it's biased, but you do hear of more – like fire forest fires in the west then it sounds then it seems like i hear in the northeast um well, like, think uh, back. is that and that, is that because i'm is, sure you're aware of it gatlinburg tennessee yeah you remember that yeah uh there were i think uh, there are thousands of homes and businesses burned yeah i think I'm, i don't have it in front of me 14 lives i'm going to say lives lost mm. and what is that close to gatlinburg's close to the great smoky national park and that's the national parks are different than the national forest. The national this is historical. Historically, the national forest. I'm going to back up to a question you kind of you almost asked. The national forest during the Department of Agriculture, uh, the parks, and the and the BLM are in the Department of Interior. And and you, you should be thinking right now, well, why is that? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they all in the same place? Right. And they're natural resources. Way back, Theodore Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot, the first chief of the Forest Service, with that title anyhow, uh, they got it in the Department of Agriculture because forests back then were closer to egg uh, uh, production. Hmm. Uh, You're growing a product. Uh, They did a lot of management. They still do, uh, helping the private landowners. But they looked at that as being producing a crop. And Congress gave them their marching orders back then. Uh, and they supported themselves. They didn't need a budget. They actually put money back in the Treasury. It would be very easy for the Forest Service to pay all the costs and put money back in the Treasury if they were managing the forest the way they were originally intended to be. The national parks are preserved. There's no timber cutting on the national right. parks. So they're, they're amassing some of these great volumes. And that was what was amassed right next to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. So it can happen. In, it does happen in the east, in Florida, okay, in yeah. and in it's not just a, it's mainly a western problem but it really it's not is just a western problem so so there is, there's a there's an interesting um issue going on where because of situational uh i mean because of certain um values and cultural uh, environmental policies we may we're we're probably not we're not cutting so we have more biomass accumulating which then sets up the more fuel for the fire is is who's is are things changing as far as forest management goes are we are we now managing it differently seeing that this is happening or are we just waiting for more fires to take place uh there's there's uh they're asking for money in the budget they have been uh, restorative restorative management uh going out and, and taking some of the high risk stands and actually doing cutting the environmentalists don't like it because they look at it, they say that's an excuse to do timber harvesting. You're just trying to hmm. evade the issue. I don't think that's the case. But but they're asking for money in in the budget to take some of the most critical stands and actually go out and harvest timber, and not for the sense of it will produce timber for for lumber mills. I mean, I mean but but that's not the intent. The intent is to get the biomass down. And even I'm surprised Donald Trump. Well, not, not really. Donald Trump cut money out of that in his budget. Right. Uh, and the reason was, and I think he has a good point. He said, I'll give you some money. I'm not going to cut it all out. But the Forest Service is going overboard. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you kind of my impression of what, what, what they're saying between the lines. Yeah. Uh, he said, you've got plenty of money to do the high-risk areas, and that's where you ought to be cutting. 
and there's a philosophy of let it burn. They're, they're moving closer to that and, and trying to decide there are some places you can just let burn. Uh, say it's a wilderness area and there's nothing nearby. Right. It's going to reduce the biomass. And, and what Trump said uh, is maybe I give you plenty of money and you get to high-risk areas, and I'm not going to give you money to get to backwoods. You just leave that burn. Mm. And maybe that, maybe that's a good argument. Yeah. Uh, and the problem, really, if you look out, you can see it in the news, uh, I'm sure in Utah, it's called the Wildland Urban Interface, and that's the people building houses and subdivisions right next to the forest. Right. That didn't used to be out there. And there's always been in wildfire management uh, a priority of saving people first and then buildings and then the forest. Right. That, that was just, that's just a Seems rule. Seems like a right, the healthy it's order. A rule. Right. And if you got, all of a sudden, when you got all this urban uh, wildlife urban interface building against the forest, the, the Forest Service is spending all their money right there at, that, at the interface as opposed to being inside the forest. It's becoming a bigger, bigger problem. Oh, interesting. They're protecting houses that maybe shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they needed to just stop the building uh, so they, can, they don't have to make these decisions. We're uh, talking with Professor Tom Straka about the state of the U.S. forest. We'll be back. Continue the discussion in just a minute. Welcome back. We are talking uh, with Professor Tom Straka, and he is a, a professor of forestry at Clemson University in South Carolina. He's been walking through an article he wrote titled The State of U.S. Forests, uh, six questions that he's answering. And really, he's giving us Forestry 101. It's almost like we're getting a scout merit badge here, Tom. Well, I got a couple figures that you asked earlier. Yeah. I gave me a chance to look them up. The federal government owns about three quarters of the public lands. And state governments, about 20, and then uh, county and locals, uh, the rest of it. And the Forest Service is the largest federal agency in the USDA. I'll just give you the huh. six, $6 million budget, 35,000 employees, 193 million acres. You've got to be careful of that because they also manage grasslands. I think it's close to 150 of, of forest land. Uh, it's equivalent to the size of Texas, spread over 44 states in Puerto Rico. Holy cow. And... In terms of uh, federal forest land, uh, the Forest Service uh, has 61%, and the BLM, I think everybody out, uh, everybody in Utah knows what BLM is. Yeah, we hear about the BLM all the time. What percent and, do they own? Federal, federal timber land, they own 88% of the public now, and the BLM is 6 which okay. makes sense. Yeah. The Forest Service has got the good stuff. Yeah. That's 94% uh, between the two. So the Forest Service controls most of the public timber land. And I'll just give you one more statistic that happens to be on this page. In 1987, the National Forest supplied 17% of the timber harvest in the country. Today, it's 3%. Wow. That's the difference. Yeah, there's the difference. It's the private, then, that's taking off, I guess? Pardon me? Is it the private side that's producing more of it, then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the private's picked it up. Uh, there's, there's no problem with the private. Uh, it's... Matter of fact, private can produce a lot more on, on, on less land. The, the uh, genetics that are involved now, uh, a lot of the land used to be owned by forest industry is not owned anymore by forest industry. But investors picked it up, and they manage it. They're capital intensive. And they put 
super seedlings and genetically superior trees, hmm. and they're growing a lot more wood on less land. Is it? And so there's a huge potential. Matter of fact, I think the intensively managed land, you might have environmentalists will criticize that land, but it's producing so much wood that there's there's slack in the system for conservation groups to come in and, and buy land and conserve it. Really? So, so the private sector is doing a really good job of picking up the slack. But the people that had, there were mills in the West in particular that were located near National Forest. That, they're not there anymore. Right. That, that, that depended on a, a steady supply of wood off the National Forest. Well, and this is this is jobs, right? These are jobs. This is this well, is real these are real people. So when we think about trying to create more jobs, um, if a lot of the private company or the, a lot of the land that's held privately in the East is making most of the money, then really, I guess the West has more has been choked out. I guess more by environmental policy. Exactly. Uh, what what happened was uh, a change in philosophy of. Of back at the beginning, I said uh, the national forests were production forests. They produced timber, and they produced a surplus that went into the treasury. Hmm. Uh, then environmental pressure in the '60s, and I said justified. Uh, to, I think it went overboard afterwards, but there were some big issues. The clear cutting issue uh, was pretty severe. And what happened was, I'll tell you, it's sort of like the, the wildfires. Uh, what happened was, uh, since clear cutting was driving the budgets. The Forest Service is a normal organization. If something's driving your budget, yeah. what do you do with it? Yeah. More and more of it. You feed and it. And it kind of went overboard. And, and the environmentalist had, had, had an axe to grind, and it was a good one. But to be honest with you, with the wildfires, over half the Forest Service budget now is wildfires. So what do you think is driving the Forest Service? Yeah. Uh, more, and they're trying to get more and more money, and, and they're going to spend it. They don't want more wildfires, but they're going to spend that money. Uh, and there's expensive things. You see the, I'm sure you, you must have a lot of it on television where you're at. Uh, you see these big tankers dropping the yeah. chemicals. That's super, super expensive, and that's necessary. But that's the kind of stuff you can have when you've got a big budget. So part of what's driving the Forest Service right now are wildfire budgets. Hmm. I mean, they don't like wildfires, but they sure like the money. Yeah, and they need and, the money, and, and they got to get it in somehow. And it's a special kind of money. Even Donald Trump cut the Forest Service back quite a bit. But what do you think he left alone? Wildfires. Wildfires. Okay, because that yeah. makes sense. He's not going. He's not going to fool with that. So you've got kind of a safe bet, and that's driving the whole animal right now. Does do, do you see that? I mean, it, it sounds like what you're saying, though, is the private the private companies and or the privately owned forest areas and timberland areas they seem to be really better managed. There's not clear cutting like they used to do, um, but and they're better managed. So, wouldn't it make sense that we turn over more of this property to be sold privately? Well, that's the argument, particularly in Utah. Uh, there's a couple states, and Utah is the most vocal. And you've got a law that was passed, I'm going to say in 2012, uh, that says turn the land over to the states. Yeah. And then everybody's, not everybody, but people say, yeah, and then it gets turned over to the private sector. Uh, and and th- so it's a two-step process. Uh, I'll just go with the state and, and not even say turn it over to the private sector. I, I can look at states. Washington State's a good example. There's a lot of state-managed land out there. Mm-hmm. It's managed, in my opinion, a lot better than the federal lands. They make, you know, they they pay their own budgets. Uh, it isn't, you no know, recreationists aren't deprived from using it. It's really, really managed well. 
So there's no question that, that the record supports that the states can manage the land really well. Right. Uh, so going back to the all the issues that I'm, the local newspapers in Utah, there's a lot of people that feel there's everything from constitutional to other issues that Utah should be treated the state the same as the eastern states, uh, not just Utah, all the west, the various western states. Not all of them. Some hmm. of them like the way it is right now, but a lot of them think that land should be turned over and the states could do a better ma- job of managing it. And yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. Right. I, 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 and but then is there is it going to have a, a second shift of going private? I don't have any problem with that unless is the private really going to be timber management or are you moving towards development? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so, you, so there's it's a double-edged sword to me that that in general I, I I like the idea in general, but I'm not sure if it isn't going to lead to a bad sure. place, a worse place in the long run. Right. Uh, so you got to be careful. What be about careful. I'm not sure where it would lead. What, uh, what about this? Things going to happen. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a prediction. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think there's going to be some kind of has to be a change, and the change is going to be some kind of joint federal uh, and, and states. Uh, excuse me, a joint federal state, and uh, where the states have, have a tremendous amount more control and management and, and getting some of the budgets. Huh. I think that would work where you do some kind of joint thing where it's primarily owned by the states with some sort of federal oversight yet, and you're going to have to have that. I think. Because the states don't think it through. Utah hasn't thought it through. Right. Can Utah give the land to Utah? That's fine. Do they expect the fire budgets, the federal fire budgets, hmm. to come with it? Right. That, that's what they, they need all the money, right? Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, so you can't have it both ways. Right. If you want the land, you're going to take the entire set of problems, which is a huge, huge amount of, of wildfire budgets you'd have to pay for. I'm not so sure that would work. So I think you're headed towards some kind of a, a joint situation. But... Uh, there's a lot of pressure, and my crystal ball says something along those lines will happen. Hmm. What would you suggest? We've only got a couple minutes, but um, when it comes to just the average citizen who, you know, every once in a while gets to go see a beautiful forest who maybe doesn't necessarily live close to one, um, tell us why we need to pay attention, why they matter, why any of this should matter to the average citizen. Ecosystem services. They're a part of the... I just said they're a third of, of, of the country, of, of the land base. Uh, they, they provide all kinds of services you don't think about. Uh, fundamental ones from... You now, there's carbon being sucked into them and oxygen coming out of them. Right. Uh, you start looking... Uh, the key reason they were originally saved, the national forest, wasn't timber... Uh, timber production was big, but it wasn't the biggie. The biggie was watersheds. There were tremendous floods after the clear cuts. The people, they weren't even sure how forest hydrology worked, but one thing they were sure about was after you clear cut the forest, particularly in mountainous country, there, were tr- there was tremendous damage. Soil erosion and, and, and water shed problems uh, were tremendous. Uh, so there's a whole set of ecosystem service, services provided, fundamental ones, if you want to exist, because water and air are really important things. Hmm. Uh, then you're into the other ones, you know, the wildlife, the recreation, uh, the aesthetics, just just the aesthetics. Uh, and then you you can get into bigger problems. The, they have a huge impact on, on climate change, a positive impact on, on climate change. Uh, so you're looking at something that, that is fundamental to, to the entire, just look at the state, the entire state. And then I can get into any state, almost any state you want. Uh, I said in 47 states, they're in the top 10 manufacturing sectors. A huge part of the economy is tied mm. into that. 
and then that, that, that economy is tied into it because most everybody listening probably goes to Home Depot or Lowe's or, or right. and and those those two by fours came from someplace. <laughs> And most of them from the well, a lot of them from the United States. There's imports and exports. We, when you when you net it, most of it is, is produced here, one way or the other. When we when we trade with somebody, we get a lot back. Uh, it's a huge part of the economy. It's a huge part of the environment, and it's in, in most places around the country. It's a huge part of everybody's everyday life. No, it really is, and especially just in our world, in my own – and I guess it's living in the West as part of the benefit of that too – is everything you mentioned from uh, recreation, aesthetics, climate change, watersheds, all of these things, boating, all the fun stuff that happens in and around these mountains um, and uh, forestry areas. Boy, it's, it's great for family. It's great for life. It's great for health. So – Professor Tom Straka, we appreciate you and your work you're doing there at uh, Clemson University and uh, glad to have you on the show. We'll take a break. Come back. Man, be grateful for all you've been blessed with, including this incredible world. We'll be back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. Um, as we, again, just talked about uh, the state of U.S. forests, it, it does get into this issue of management, this issue of leadership. Peter Drucker, one of the great leadership consultants and leadership thinkers, um, uh, taught that management is doing things right. Leadership is doing the right things. And as we think about our forest service and our forestries, uh, boy, do we not need to do both, right? We need to make sure we manage them properly, especially when it comes to, you know, cutting the biomass, cleaning out uh, the forest so that it does – we don't need to let them just burn, um, but also using, the, using them effectively, making sure we're protecting some of the natural resources, also making sure we're protected, protecting some of the, you know, critical species that live in that habitat – but I guess also importantly is making sure we're doing the right things. And one of the things I worry about in leadership in general is we have the loudest voice tends to win the race, not necessarily the most effective policy. And it it scares me a little bit that we, we make a, an environmental decision because some people were clear-cutting and destroying the environment. So then we make a decision – that now 30, 40 years later is not proving to pay off anymore as more and more fires take off. And also jobs are being lost and communities destroyed. So we need some leadership, don't we? And where is that going to come from? Well, it'll come from Washington. Well, maybe it won't. Or it'll come from you demanding a higher level of leadership and you yourself getting more involved. So that's one of the reasons we bring you these topics so that you can be informed and when you're sitting at dinner with your friends, you can make some informed conversation. That's uh, hour number one of the program, folks, here to help you be the good in the world. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the program. Hope you're having a great day so far. 
as uh, as you just take it on, right? You got to deal with all of the issues. Sometimes, you know, stuck in traffic. You feel your heart racing. You want to blow up. Do you know how to calm that down? Then you get to work, and everyone around you seems to have a completely different goal than you do. So how do we get on the same page? And you got to go get your, you know, lunch, but it's hot and boom, boom, boom. Life just piles on. Do you feel like you know how to manage the emotional side of it all? Because if not, today we're going to be talking about the EQ leader. Emotional intelligence is uh, is kind of, you know, it's the, it's the hot new trend in management and leadership uh, theory. And so today we're going to be speaking with a, a, a professor, no, a clinical psychologist and the founder and CEO of an organization that helps to train leaders in emotional intelligence. We'll be talking about uh, his book, The EQ Leader, Instilling Passion, Creating Shared Goals, Building Meaningful Organizations Through Emotional Intelligence. Boy, oh boy, do we not need that. Um, and uh, not, not that we don't need it. I mean, our team's got nothing but an abundance of emotional intelligence. I'm not sure what you mean by that. <laughs> oh, you guys are so predictable. That's great. Um, so we'll get to that fun today. Plus, boy, have we got a lot of headlines. Great new research coming out about honking of horns. Mm. Uh, maybe not all it's cracked up to be. Maybe there's better sounds than that annoying horn. Really? Yeah. That could actually get you to move more effectively with half the stress. But isn't the car horn supposed to be alarming? Yeah. Does it need to be what it is? Does it need to be that alarming, and do we need to use it the way we use it? Because there are several uses for the horn. Mm -hmm. There is, come on, buddy, you've got a green light horn, but there's also, oh, my goodness, I'm going to get into an accident. I want you to know. Right. And then there's the old famous, hey, I'm in the driveway waiting for you. Are you coming out or what? And that's to your wife. That's just rude. Exactly. So, And it mines exclusively, why are you in front of me? Really? <laughs> yeah, when I honk the horn, that's the message. Why are you in front of me? Interesting. Move. Oh, there's also the, you just cut me off, I'm going to let you know about it. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let me just tell you, this. let's suggest this. If, if, if you're flying as a, let's say, I don't know, a duck. Hmm. A duck. And you're flying up in the sky. You said, you said, let's say a duck, so I said it. Yeah. So let's say you're a duck. You're a duck. And you're up in the sky. And you're up in the sky. <laughs> I'm and <dead>. he's, <laughs> and then another duck kind of starts to fly into your area. Is that duck going to choose a car's horn sound to scare that other duck away, so as not to break a wing and kill you as a duck? No. Well, these are deep questions. It's not going to choose a car horn sound. So the, were the researchers on this the Duck Dynasty family? Yes. Hmm. So we're going to talk about what sound would be just as applicable to get you to safety and actually maybe less stressed even. Foghorn. Foghorn leghorn? Yeah. That's a, that's a rooster. Well, it's different, but still, I think it would be effective. So we'll get to that. We'll get to all that fun stuff. Plus, um, we'll give you some advice on if you're going to be um, honoring uh, somebody that's passed uh, and you want to sprinkle their ashes, we'll just give you some do's and don'ts 
about sprinkling a loved one's ashes. Okay, especially in you know certain situations. Anywho. All of that straight ahead, but first to the headlines with Terry South. What's up, Terry? The victims of Monday's deadly plane crash in Mississippi involving a military transport plane included 15 Marines and one Navy sailor, authorities said Tuesday. Investigators are still trying to determine why the KC-130 air tanker plummeted to the ground in rural Mississippi on Monday. The service personnel on board the plane, all of whom were killed, were mostly members of an elite Marine Special Operations Unit on their way for training in Arizona. The names of those killed have not been released, but authorities said some of them were based at Stewart Air National Guard Base in Newburgh, New York. Mm, so investigations ongoing. It's sad, and they feel like it just had a major engine problem and Boom. fell out of the sky. And then had a lot of ammo and stuff on it. Right. In other news, Microsoft Corporation on Tuesday announced an initiative to bring high-speed internet to millions of rural Americans through uh, unused television airwaves and a long-term bet for user growth. The Redmond Washington Technology Company proposed using Spectrum typically reserved for TV stations to broadcast high-speed internet to underserved U.S. locations. To start, Microsoft will commit a five-year effort to bring broadband connectivity to 2 million underserved Rural Americans, Microsoft hopes other companies and government and the government will support what it has dubbed the Rural Airband Initiative. Yeah. However, the plan has attracted opposition from broadcasters who are reluctant to share the airwaves. Reaching 20, all 23 million underserved rural Americans would cost as much as $12 billion, oh, wow. Microsoft said. The company will spend whatever it takes to reach the target at $2 million. It plans to launch at least 12 projects across 12 states within the next 12 months. But these people will get behind if not, right? They're, right. they're kids. Everybody's got to be online eventually. we got to get it going. That's the idea. And so when uh, TVs move, t- all TV stations move to digital broadcasting recently, the signals they were using are now available. Bingo. And there's this idea to send the internet across those those unused uh, signals. How interesting that Microsoft is on the case. Well, yeah. Some of this has to be Smart. with the fact that uh, you know technology sector is starting to understand that they're not really focused on they're they're focused on building things, but they're not worried about the things they're breaking as they're building yeah. things. And they've left uh, large pockets of America behind as they've continued to Just innovate. Just keep going keep where going. the money is. Um, let's see. This was an interesting story. For 15 years, Best Buy's Geek Squad installation and repair service has served as one key advantage over Amazon that the e-commerce giant seemed unlikely to match. But over the last few months, Amazon has quietly quietly been hiring an army of in-house gadget experts to offer free Alexa consultations as well as product installations for a fee inside customer homes. The new offering, which is already rolled out in seven markets without much fanfare, is aimed at helping customers set up a smart home. So the industry term used to describe household systems like heating, lighting, and other with, you know apps and stuff in your house. So that came out on Monday. Hmm. As soon as they reported that, this is uh, Recode.com, they made that report. Almost immediately, investors reacted by selling out of Best Buy's stock in a big way. The stock was down more than 7% by 1130 that morning. That drop worked out to a more than $1 billion loss in market cap. Oh. The brick and- <laughs> they lost a billion dollars because the story was published. Oh, my heavens. In a matter of like four hours. Yeah, that's... Someone's going to lose their job there. It's like, oops. 
I, you know, so whatever. There's whatever. A, there, Amazon does something. It's and a billion dollars. Best Buy loses a billion bucks. <laughs> uh, finally, in Alaska, a man is recovering after being attacked by a bison while hiking in western North Dakota's Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Holy cow! Park officials say the 65-year-old hiker encountered the large animal on a trail after taking photos of a sunset. Here, doggy. He tried to walk around the bison, but didn't provide a wide enough berth. They said the bison apparently threw the man into a bush, knocking him unconscious. When the man regained consciousness, he was bleeding from a leg laceration, but made his way to the trailhead. When he saw more bison up ahead, he climbed several feet up uh, this, this hill, basically trying to get away from them. The guy kept yelling, help, 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 said Christopher Valquez, one of three airmen from Minot Air Force Base who were camping nearby and heard the man's faint calls. The airmen and another camper rushed to help when the bison moved ba- uh, to the back of the hill. So they're moving towards the yeah. Game. Airman Jake Nixon said the hiker had stuffed his socks into his wound, but the sock, the socks, and his pants were covered in blood. Wow. Their fellow rescuer tied his shirt around the hiker's wound to stop the bleeding. He was treated at a hospital and released. But again, bison attacking. We've always said give a wider berth when you're walking around bison. When in doubt, give a wide berth. Yeah. Bison, uh, is that the exact same thing as a buffalo? Are they, are they just – can you use those names interchangeably? Probably not. But they're in the family. They're all big, furry, wildebeest-looking things. Not dogs. Not dogs. Not kitties. Nope, but dangerous animals. Yeah. That's why – do you remember we, we did a story about a lady that had a bison or a buffalo that mm-hmm. lived in her house? Right. Which is really odd is it was in the kitchen yeah. eating from the table. I don't know how you give a wide berth when you're like trying to scooch by – the bison at the dinner table. That one might be a domesticated bison, where this man stumbled. Yeah, this was a wild, wild bison. Yeah. Have you ever eaten bison? I have. Twice. Good yeah. bison. It's lean. It tastes like chicken. Right. Well, mm. no, it tastes like beef. But you can get you can get bison burgers. Yeah, I just get them at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. They're wrapped in plastic. Super good. Yeah. Hmm. Do you like the wild bison? Do you prefer wild bison or domesticated bison? Uh, the one at the grocery store in the meat case. That one's pretty good. I think the one that's on sale tastes the best. Not sure what exactly it is. I love like hand-fed bison. This is the conversation. It's like, so, oh, this tastes a little different. My wife goes, yeah, it's bison meat. I'm like, oh, great. There's my experience with bison. Me like bison meat. Me like bison meat. So, yeah, so you have animals rising up, right? We have all these snake stories that we keep coming up with. And then we have new movie trailers because that's how it works. And then we have the bear attacks that have been yeah. happening. I now wonder, we have a bison attack. Well, I wonder how close the guy really was. We had I seagulls mean, attacking an elementary totally. school a week ago. We had the seal that pulled the girl into the water. <laughs> we did. I mean, this it's a dangerous world. So maybe it's not clowns or zombies anymore. Maybe it's animals. No, it's animals attack. But they're doing it on the down low because it's not like getting a lot of attention as a coordinated right. effort. Well, yeah, it's not like a, it's not like a movement. If it is a coordinated effort, who's the leader in the animal kingdom? The lion. Who's calling the shots? It's always the lion. From where? A zoo or Africa? Africa. Wow. So maybe those maybe those when animals attack specials on Fox were a little ahead of their time. Oh yeah. Maybe they were prophetic. Oh yeah. See, they, the animals have been doing this for centuries. <laughs> it's almost like I don't know what it is. It's almost like it's natural to them. Wow. Weird. Maybe they're just bored. Well, I I know a guy that was bored. Did he eat another human being? No, he was gored, I mean. Oh, gored. Oh, gored. By a boar. Oh, wow. Mm. He called it bored. Nice. (sighs) Speaking of uh, animals, car horns uh, may very quickly be replaced, folks, by duck quacks. Hmm. 
according to science. If you can't stand the harsh, stressful sound of a blaring car horn, you're not alone. But cities could uh, be about to get a lot quieter after a team of researchers came up with a far more pleasant alternative. After testing a range of different sounds, the research team from Seoul, South Korea, found that one sound resembling a duck's quack would do the job perfectly. Plus, it's much more pedestrian-friendly than loud, angry horns, they decided. The scientists found a quacking horn still does its job of alerting people to danger, but it does so without being irritating. This was a test of about 100 people, and they just threw a bunch of different sounds at them to see which sound uh, produced more stress and, and are loud and which sounds still create an alert reaction but are a lot softer to the ear. See, but think of those think of those scenarios that we mentioned earlier. There are four or five of them. Mm-hmm. If you're honking at somebody to come out to the car because you're waiting for them, they're just going to hear a bunch of ducks and think, oh, there's a family of ducks going by. Same thing if you're in the street. You just think there are ducks crossing. Well, but if you live in a place where there are no ducks. Such as? That should, well, I don't know, New York City, downtown there's ducks. Manhattan. Central Park. Well, in Central Park, sure. But if you yeah. live in, like, let's say Brooklyn, All right. you probably don't, like, have a bunch of ducks walking around the neighborhood. Okay. Now, in my neighborhood, we have ducks. So do I. They camp out in my front yard. And every once in a while, you'll see a dead duck because it was crossing the road. And right. then I – why did the duck cross the road, you start to ask. And we can't – we haven't figured that to out. To get a quacker. But here's the deal. Um. But whenever the science I, is science. No, you guys you can't fight science. Whenever I hear someone who doesn't have a traditional horn, so they have some sort of tricked out yeah, horn. Yeah, like the Dukes of Hazzard. Usually La Cucaracha. Which is yeah. my ringtone on my phone. But um, whenever I hear that, my first thought is, what are they trying to prove? They're trying to be safer. So, so when you hear a duck quack who's a horn, I think that would be a little – I don't think people would get the message because they wouldn't know what that was. Confusing. Someone with a duck quacking. No, but what they do is you just roll it out with the next year of cars. So all the Camrys come out as ducks, maybe mallards, you know? (laughs) So now we have different versions of ducks. Yeah, I mean, that's the key, right? I want want Daffy. So they workshopped a few different ones, right? Yeah, they did. They didn't – we don't call it workshopping. That's like artists do that. They – they scientifically tested different sounds. Okay, so it's science. And, but we, we were able to obtain, I guess, some of the sounds that they were testing, and we want to test you, our listeners, to see how you feel yeah. about these sounds. And maybe you like them better than the duck. Maybe okay. they were wrong. All right. Okay, here's the first one. Okay. I'm gonna yeah! Hmm. So when somebody pulls in front of you, you would hit the sound? I'm gonna yeah! Wow, what's he saying? Uh, I can't even understand him. So I don't even. I don't, yeah. I don't think. Okay. Okay. I, I don't like that. That's one. Here's the next one. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That would wake you up. If all of a sudden a yodeler started. <laughs> that would yodeling. wake you up real quick. Oh, honey, your ride's here. Time to go to high school. And it's it's long too, so it's got that going for. But it. I think you'd have to make a shorter version of that. Okay, I, I'm with no, the yodel so far. Uh, doesn't do the doesn't have the right effect if you don't do it as long. Okay, okay here's the third one. Mm-mm. No, you can't have really? that. That's the sound that happens if the person doesn't yield when you honk and you hit a bison. And you hit a bison. <laughs> that's that's a that's a, actually a water buffalo. Okay, because that's so, so moist. You're okay. So so far you're with the yodeler. Yeah, yodel for sure. Okay, here's the next one. 
Okay, no. That actually sounds like a skid. Yeah, I'm going to still stick with the yodeler. Even even over the duck, if someone pulls in front of me, I'm hitting the yodel sound. Okay. Well, we've got one more. Okay. I think uh, I think this one, w- I okay. think you'll appreciate this one the most. Yeah. Yeah. That's pleasant. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. Yeah. And it is. It's gentle, like, hey, I'm over here. Don't pull into my lane. It's soothing. Yeah, that's what we're doing. So I, I'm going to go with that one over the yodel and even over the duck sound. Really? And then I wish we could just hear him sing the rest of the song. But I think this is the whole song. Is this Slim Whitman? Yes. Good old Slim Whitman. Slim Whitman. When in doubt, Slim Whitman it out. Okay. We've solved the problem. Go with Slim Whitman or the yodel over the quack. Or over the horn as well. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence up next. When I'm calling you Everyone has experienced that moment of annoyance with somebody at work who is amazing at their job but not so great with workplace relationships. Put kindly, many companies have tolerated brilliant people who, you know, do amazing things in what they do, except they lack empathy. They don't know how to relate to those that they work with. But that is beginning to change. Companies are now putting more resources into training their employees to not only be good at their job, but to actively strive to build stronger relationships with their coworkers. Here to talk to us about uh, this movement and uh, the, the basically the theory behind the movement of emotional intelligence is uh, Dr. Steven Stein. He's the author of the book, The EQ Leader, Instilling Passion, Creating Shared Goals, and Building Meaningful Organizations Through Emotional Intelligence. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for your time and being with us today. Great to be with you, Matt. Give us uh, just kind of a definition, a, a starting definition of what is emotional intelligence for those that haven't heard. Sure. Well, a very simple way to understand it is through three things. The first is being aware of your own emotions as well as being aware of the emotions of others around you. The second is the ability to manage your own emotions as well as managing the emotions of others around you. And the third area is the ability to use emotions, to get things done, to make decisions, to manage stress. In a nutshell, that, uh, that sort of encompasses much of what we refer to as emotional intelligence. And it, so it's being able to kind of be aware of it and manage it uh, and enroll people into my emotion, but also being aware of others' emotions as well, right? And managing, helping to manage their emotion. Exactly. Is it, we, we hear about it being kind of the new kind of level of intelligence where it's, um, I guess it's better than IQ and your your memory or your your typical measurement of intelligence but how how is emotional intelligence actually benefit us more than our intellect well they're all pretty important but one way to think about it is it's your iq that sort of gets you hired gets you in the job you know people look for that uh harvard graduate or yale graduate to get you started but what really gets you promoted once you start working 
is going to be your emotional skills, your abilities to manage people, manage yourself, and, and so on. Yeah. Is how do you see emotional intelligence um, playing out in in today's work environment? Is it is it as valued as it should be? And is are we really training people toward that end? Well, I'll tell you, we started talking about this stuff about 25 years ago. So it's been a long haul that we've been <laughs> trying to promote this concept. And yeah, I think it's it's much stronger now than it was when we first started. People laughed at us and said, you know, emotions at work, what are you, crazy? And And now it's becoming pretty well accepted, where as long as you have two people uh, that w- have to interact with each other, it's going to be important. Also, we talk about millennials and the whole issue about motivating millennials, we again see the importance of emotional intelligence. Hmm. That's so true. Huh? And I mean, in a way, they it seems like a millennial might demand more authenticity, more empathy and treatment, uh, but maybe better treatment emotionally if you want to get the performance out of them. Absolutely. Like a lot of us boomers, you know, we like to complain about those millennials, but the reality is they have a lot to offer in the workplace. You know, I mean, what do we know about social media and a lot of these other things that are coming up the pipe and our ability to manage millennials to understand, you know, what it is they really are looking for, which is, you know, some support, more support than we used to get when we started work. Hmm. What? So if I'm a if I'm a really good, emotionally intelligent leader, and and I I get how to I am aware of my emotion I manage my emotion well and I can read people pretty well and their emotion. What does that get me to do? What what what's the outcome of me with my people? What am I able to do that other leaders aren't? Well, what we found is that your people be much more engaged in the workplace. You know, they'll they'll uh, value you more. They'll value the work more and uh, they'll get along better. You'll have much stronger and cohesive teams. Uh, people work together. Uh, we've done this research over 25 years and the effects of having an emotional intelligent leader are just incredible, especially when you compare two leaders side by side, one high on emotional intelligence and one who's pretty medium or low on it. Yeah. So is this why you wrote the book? I mean, if this, if we've been researching emotional intelligence for 25 years, what uh, what was your motivation for the book? Uh, well, again, I, I, uh, for 25 years, I've been looking mainly at, at, at work in general, like how does it affect the way we work. But in the last six or seven years, the conversation has really turned around leadership. And I think in the book, I, I cite a, a widespread Deloitte study showing about the, the dearth of leaders, that that's a major issue in today's workplace. So, And the publisher called me up and said, you know what, we really need something new in the leadership uh, mm. space and emotional intelligence is the direction that people seem to be, you know, going. Jack Welch talks about emotional intelligence. Many of the, the leaders who've understood or learned about this and started to understand it have seen how important it is. And um, in the very title of the book, uh, The EQ Leader, Instilling Passion, Creating Shared Goals, Building Meaningful Organizations, um, really, is this because we keep hearing over and over, and you mentioned the word engagement about how like 70 percent, according to a Gallup poll, I think 70 percent of employees are disengaged. Is it is it because we lack kind of the emotional connection to work or is something else going on? Well, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, one is if you're doing the kind of work that you're suited for, if it's the right kind of work and if it's the right environment, and then this whole issue of connecting with the people at work. You know what? We love our jobs when we love the people that we work with and we love the environment. If we can't get along with the people, we don't like our boss, 
who wants to show up at work? You know, I mean, we it, it's a pain. It is a pain. And then, I mean, because it's, I guess that's the thing now is it's almost like we have a lot of free agents where, and we, I guess we saw in the NBA draft this year, having a lot of free agents can create some chaos because they're free to go, right? And they'll take their goods, they'll take their energy, their passion, their, their incredible results, I guess, wherever they feel most connected and most appreciated. Absolutely. And you look like organizations like uh, Google and Amazon, I mean, they have no trouble attracting talent. Uh, and because they use some of these techniques in their organizations, they get the best talent. Is is there – one of the things I worry about, and I've trained for leadership companies and gone in and done a lot of uh, organizational development work, is this – is the concern that what we teach kind of comes off and, and almost produces more uh, inauthentic people or kind of more – I call it techniquey people that just run the technique that you're teaching them of how to make people feel like you care instead of actually caring. Is there a danger to that? There always is a danger to that. People can try and fake it. And that's why the four pillars that I identify in the book, the first one is authenticity. And that's all about being real. And especially the younger, the millennials today can sense when you're faking it. They're really good. They have those antenna up and say, oh, my God, he's putting me on again. Um, so you do have to learn how to be real. And that's why when you, you learn emotional intelligence, the, the good thing is you can learn or improve in it. It's going to require something more than just a lecture or reading a book, as much as I want to sell books. It's going to require some element of coaching or going out in the real world and getting certain kinds of experiences that increase your abilities in these areas. Yeah, I call it like the tacit skill. Like you've got with emotional intelligence, it's not learned just intellectually. It's earned. It's it's learned emotionally. You have to feel it to know it. Exactly. It's like it's, it's like balancing experience. a bike, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's an experience. You have to go and do it. We've been working on some uh, experiential um, uh, programs to help people you know, go off for a day and, and do experiences where they actually learn these skills. But you got to do it in order to really gain the ability. You know, you got to practice being assertive. you got to practice empathy. I can tell you what it means, but it's not going to get you there. Hmm. Maybe run through the other pillars. What, so authenticity is one of the pillars. Give us the other three. Well, the second one is coaching. That's, uh, you know, today as a, as a leader, you can't just go tell people what to do and then walk away. We have to make sure that they have what they need, they have the support, uh, we're checking, we're, we're helping them. Uh, if you don't have the tools you need and the emotional support you need, you're just not going to get the best job done. Hmm. The next one, the third one, we call it insight. But what it means is really the ability to communicate a purpose to the work. If you just want your people to come to work for a paycheck, well, it's going to be very transactional, and you're not going to get a lot of engagement, as we talked about earlier. You've got to have a purpose. You've got to have a real reason why we're here. We're here to do something different, something unique. We're going to change the world. Whatever it is, you know, we spend time with organizations helping them find out what is the purpose, what motivates their people. And the, the final one is the area of, of innovation. You know, disruption is everywhere in business today. We see it in the taxi business, the hotel industry. They're all getting blown away. So to be a good leader today, you have to think in an innovative way. You have to take risks, challenges. You have to let your employees take risks. And don't be afraid of letting them fail. Hmm. And I guess that goes back to emotional intelligence because if – if I'm an emotional, emotionally intelligent leader, I will make the space safe for you to fail, and, and I help coach you back on the horse. Exactly. I mean, the important thing about failure 
is that you learn something. You know, we in our organization, we have lots of opportunities where people try new things, different things. They may do something that's costly. As long as they come back and say, look, this is what we've learned. You know, we won't replicate that same mistake. We're going to change things. We're going to do something different as a result of it. Is do you sense that we are we have a dearth of emotional intelligence? Is there is there a vacuum there? Do we lack it? Is, and is it something that we? It, it almost sounds like these are skills that we should be teaching younger instead of just hoping to get everyone up to speed once they get out of college. Absolutely, and uh, we've been trying to put our efforts at, at moving down the pipeline as yeah. well. I do have a book out for college students as well, which is building emotional intelligence for college students because that's what lack of emotional intelligence is the, one of the biggest reasons that students don't make it through college. It's not because of IQ or some of these other things. It's because of these emotional issues. So yeah, and then we're pushing it in high schools and, and, and trying to get it down earlier. It would be great if we taught these skills earlier. But let's start with where we need them right now in, in the working world. Uh, I lecture at business schools where uh, many of them are just starting to discover these skills and starting to teach these skills to business students. Oh, that's so cool. Um, let's do this. Let's take a break, Steve. We'll come back and continue the discussion about emotional intelligence and the importance of emotional intelligence as a leader in today's business world and life in general. We're speaking again with Dr. Steven Stein, author of the book, The EQ Leader. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. If you've ever uh, been in a situation where you just couldn't believe the person next to you at work would say such a thing or would lose their cool, would ignore you or go off, and it really was making uh, getting results at work difficult, then maybe it's emotional intelligence we're lacking. And our guest today, Stephen Stein, is uh, the author of the book, The EQ Leader, Instilling Passion, Creating Shared Goals, and Building Meaningful Organizations Through Emotional Intelligence. He joins us today. He's a clinical psychologist. He's also uh, um, been validating these principles um, scientifically for more than 30 years. Dr. Stephen Stein, thank you again for your time. Thank you, Matt is and one of the points that may have slipped by everybody is emotional intelligence you said earlier it's it's teachable pretty much right so by and large we can educate and improve our ability to be aware to manage emotion and to enroll people into emotion absolutely we've seen some great studies carried out where people and we've had with control groups where those uh, one group being taught and another group not being taught uh, and mainly the teaching is through coaching, through actual experiential coaching, where you get to do assignments, you go out each week, try being assertive, try being empathic, less impulsive, and so on. And we've shown that people have, in, have, have dramatically changed their behavior as a result of this. Hmm. Is it a cultural thing? I mean, is would we see more emotional intel- intelligence in other cultures, in other uh, parts of the world than we see in the West, or is this is this a Western phenomenon? No, we've been working around the world. In fact, I recently got back from China where we've tested people there as well, and we've tested people in the Middle East and South America. We're working globally with this concept, and what we find, which is amazing, is that the concept of emotional intelligence resonates everywhere in the world that I travel. People just really love this concept because it's so simple, basic, 
it's it's intuitive. And uh, there are variations in our culture. Some cultures are higher than others in certain skills that we talk about. But it's really interesting to see how they play out cross-culturally. Um, I, I wonder, too, I, I feel like uh, a lot of times these ideas, I think universally the principles all apply to every level of humanity and whatever your role. But I also feel like you know if I'm the guy that um, – is sweeping up the floors at night after all of the stockbrokers go home. Um, what? How will emotional intelligence help me in my world to to maybe take my job to the next level or and become the best I can be um, when I might have less power in the organization when I might have less say? Well, it's how you look at your job. I mean, one thing is your motivation. I mean, you could be the sweeper who just sort of slacks off for half the time and, and only works for part of the time. Or you could be the one who's really motivated and say, hey, I'm really optimistic about this. I know if I do a good job sweeping here, I may able, be able to you know, move my way up into the mailroom. And then from there, maybe start becoming a trader. Who knows? So it's the way in which you deal with your own emotions in that case that's really important. Is You keep talking, too, about... Um I guess, uh, like coaching. You use the word coaching, and that's one of your four pillars. How do you, as a, because you're you're a you're a clinical psychologist. You you're used to doing, uh, you know, psychiatric or psychological interventions with people. Uh, is what's the difference between coaching versus, you know, kind of doing a clinical practice with somebody? And is it something that any boss can do? Is it something that a parent can do with their kids? Absolutely, and it is quite different. Um, my clinical psychology hat is quite different from my business hat where I run an organization with 150 people. And as a business leader, my, one of the things I do as coaching is the old adage of walking around. I walk around and talk to people and see how they're doing and what are their challenges and you know how are things going today. And any business leader can do that. Walk around, talk to your people, listen to them, which is one of the most important things we teach. Listen to what they're saying, what's going on in their world, because we don't often get access to that sitting up as leaders. Hmm. What would you suggest to us as parents who want to raise more emotionally intelligent children? What can we do to start engaging some of these pillars in our family at younger ages, whether it's authenticity, coaching, insight, innovation? Well, one of the things, of course, that's important with our kids is coaching. Uh, At my stage, I do it with my grandchildren. Yeah. It's important for me when I sit with them to really listen to them and to watch them. We don't spend enough time just letting them play, letting them do their own thing. I sit with my grandson while he does his plays with his Legos and my granddaughter while she's playing around with her dolls, and and we play together, and I let them lead the play. We, we, We tell stories together where I tell a piece and then he tells the next piece. So it's really paying attention to them, letting them have a role in the game that you're playing with them. Is that what you mean in your book by autonomous thinking? Absolutely. The, you know, we teach them at that young age to start making their own choices and to go their own way. If I take a story, for example, in a certain direction and my four-year-old grandson wants to go in a different direction, well, I let him take the story in his direction. Yeah. And what's cool about that, too, is the more you allow people around you to do that, the more you come to know the people. Absolutely. Um, one of my daughters is into improv, and they use this whole concept of yes and, yeah. right, where they add to what the other person is doing. And that's so important in sort of acknowledging and validating the other person's role. It, um, I, I see it a lot because your kids will come in and they'll, they'll say, Dad, what am I supposed to do about this? And they really want the answer, it seems like. 
Um, and and what's funny is it's I, a lot of times it's just easier to give them the answer instead right, of kind of putting it back on them. Absolutely, and and this ranges from the whole level. I was called in once from one of the world's most famous consulting companies, and their issue was that they were so quick at giving their clients the answer that it was causing them trouble. So we had to teach them to slow down, ask more questions, uh, be patient, and let the person sort of come up with the answer somewhat by themselves or with guidance. What do you do if – and help us through that a little bit. If you don't answer the question, do you just turn it back with another question or how do you kind of prompt them into thinking on their own? Well, we do. Uh, we can ask the question. We can ask it a different way. We can give clues. We can say, well, what about this thing? Do you think this might work? Do you think that might work? What would happen if you worked this all the way through to the end? Mm. And we really get them to problem solve and think about it and use emotion appropriately as they do that. Does uh, it's, it's really funny, even, even just asking, what, what have you tried already? Tell me what you've already thought through. I mean, that very idea, because a lot of times with my kids, I'll ask, I don't know, what have you, where have you already looked? What have you tried to do to figure this out? And a lot of times it's nothing. That's right. It's a great starting point. I mean, it may be nothing. It may be something that they didn't try very hard at or that it was the wrong time. But, you know, it gives you a place to start exploring what's going on hmm. with that issue. What do you suggest, too, we do um, when we – because we know risk-taking is important. We know we want we, and we need our people to be willing to stick their neck out a little bit. What are some things that we should be doing as leaders to, to allow risk-taking and, and, and maintain some safety for them? Well, there's different levels of that, and, and in our organization, we sort of take it to about the maximum level. We, put, we have an annual hackathon where people self-form teams, and they come up with ideas and ways to improve the business, come up with new products, and we give rewards to people for coming up with these, and they have to do business plans. It's a huge experience that you can put in your organization, and it's an amazing social and learning experience as well. And we found that as a way for people to actually come up and present things and take risks. And then we carry out some of the ideas that they've, they've come forward with and see if they work. That's great. Now, do, you, do you give them time in the day to go work on it? And then do you give them a month to do, do an activity? It pretty much, yeah. We start off, they have a month or two to start planning. We have rules, we have guidelines. And then we have a full day of the hackathon where... Uh, people are working together in teams all over the organization. The senior management acts as consultants. If they need help with the accounting group, for example, in the business plan or the marketing group, they go to the head of marketing or the head of accounting, and they work together in these uh, self-directed teams, and they do a, a Dragon's Den presentation on the, the end of the week on the Friday uh, in front of the whole organization. Each team gets up and does their presentation. They have something like six or seven minutes to present. How awesome is that? So that really ends up being your people kind of not doing their job of their typical job, but instead working on the business. Absolutely. They completely learn to think of the business and work on the business, do a business plan. Um, It's amazing what it does for them. And they work cross-functionally, right? Because you have marketing people and programmers and uh, customer service people all joining together and bringing their unique perspectives to each other. And then at the end, uh, I'm assuming the leadership teams would adopt some of the ideas, take on some of the ideas, and then, I guess, pass on some? Absolutely, absolutely. We have a, a we have a, a, an award, rewards for the top three thousand dollars for the, wow. the top one, and then we've put together a little innovation hub, a group that actually implements the top uh, three or four ideas, and we've been doing that for several years now. That is an amazing 
thing. And again, a very simple activity, kind of formalized. We we saw it here even at BYU Broadcasting, where uh, one of our our director um, ended up leaving. And in the interim, they brought in kind of a, an interim director, but that interim director had a lot of power and went um, around and sat down with every department and had conversations. And it was amazing how just hearing and allowing your people to talk could open a lot of innovation, a lot of ingenuity. Absolutely. I mean, we have such talent in the organization, and a lot of it goes unused. We don't tap all the talent that they have. So we have to provide opportunities for people to open up and to take risks and to try new things. Hmm. Other than getting your book, The EQ Leader, uh, what would you suggest as we as we wrap up here would be maybe the one or two things that each of us could do today to improve our emotional intelligence? Well, the first thing I think we can do is we can try and listen a little more carefully to whoever we're going to be interacting with next. Let's try and listen to what they're really saying. You know, how are you? Fine. Well, you know, are you really fine? Like, let's try and, with that third ear, try and find out what they're trying to say. Pay attention to that. Um, Another thing we could do is really look at the way that we see the world. Are we the optimist or the pessimist? And I think we can try looking at things from a different light. If we put more of a positive spin on things that we're doing, uh, we can be a little bit happier. It's powerful. And when one person's happier, it seems like we're all happier. We appreciate your time. Dr. Steven Stein, the name of the book is The EQ Leader, Instilling Passion, Creating Shared Goals, and Building Meaningful Organizations Through Emotional Intelligence. Boy, oh boy, who wouldn't want more authenticity, coaching, insight, and innovation at their workplace? Well, apparently emotional intelligence is where we can begin for that. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back. Wrap up. We'll be wrapping up hour number two of the program. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, Nothing more difficult, it seems like, than losing someone you care about. And so many big decisions you got to make, you, you know, funeral arrangements have to be made. You have to go through what they've left behind, maybe possibly sell a house, a yard sale. And even more difficult at times, uh, they might have a request that you spread their ashes and that Somewhere. can be difficult. It's more a, difficult than you would think. You would think it wouldn't be difficult. It's just ashes, just spread them. Not a big deal. Well, uh, <laughs> there are a few things um, that that can get in the way, though. Um, Liz Hobson was dutifully spreading her deceased mother's ashes from a bridge in Newcastle, England, when a strong wind blew them direct, directly back into her face. <laughs> yep, she unfortunately got a dusting of her mother's remains. Hobson tried her best to shake the ash off as her family cracked up with laughter. Hobson's daughter Liz shared the clip on YouTube, noting that this was uh, her grandmother's way of getting the last laugh. Don't worry, the family said they later successfully released their grandmother's ashes in other locations important to her across England. See, that's the kind of thing that would kill in my family. If that happened, if somebody decided they wanted to be cremated and that happened at the funeral, (laughs) we'd be in stitches. And in a way, it might be a nice spirit, right? The spirit of laughter, nothing better. Except when you're trying to have a somber moment of letting Nana out in the river. 
Although if I had lived a long, full life and that was me who had been cremated and my ashes went everywhere into somebody's face, I would, I would love that. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what you do is you, you go to the windiest place on earth and then you ask your enemy to release your ashes. <laughs> but some people might, you know, they just might throw the, you know, the urn in the, in the water. Anyway, so watch out for that. Just we're, we're here to help every way we can. Uh, also, you got to watch out for thieves. This was a really interesting, I guess, uh, robbery spree. I don't know what we're going to call this. Uh, it's almost more like a shopping spree. An overnight theft spree in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, ended up with an arrest of a New York man who uh, last week, according to police, they say Joseph Bishop, 25, allegedly entered 18 unlocked vehicles, stealing various items from each. Now, you won't believe what he stole, though. From the police report, the items that were taken, one brown wallet, one gray wallet, seven lighters, one camera, one Nikon camera, uh, three packs of Tic Tacs, two flashlights, one small tape measure, one roll of used electrical tape, and one pair of headphones. So really just everything in the car. It's pretty much everything I bought at Walmart <laughs> last week. An owner's manual. <laughs> but it's funny. It really was kind of like a shopping spree, right? Wendy's napkins. He also got four USB chargers because you could, you know. You need a charger everywhere you go. One small baggie full of pens, some wet wipes, hmm. 27 CDs and DVDs, about $30 in loose change, and not to forget the doggy, seven dog treats. Oh, so he was doing it for his dog. Well, and apparently a baby. Yeah. And, but <laughs> it's just, it's really, and again, that's a very easy theft. And is it even, I guess that it's, 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 it's petty theft, right? Because... Everything, all the cars were unlocked. You didn't have to break anything. And it is a tape measure. And you never know when you're going to need a tape measure. Do you know how the cops finally caught up with him? How? Oh. When you walk with those yeah. in your pocket? Tic-tac walk. Everybody knows where you are. So tacky. That little, uh, that walk, there's nothing There's nothing that is more likely to get you killed in nature than walking with a bunch of Tic-tacs in your pocket. Is it? Especially that orange flavor. Mm. See, but the orange, they don't last very long at my house because they just, they're addictive. You just pop them. You pop them like pills. Um, so I guess the moral of the story is lock your car or maybe leave a shopping list. Leave a little note where, hey, this is what I've got in my car. And maybe that maybe you ought to be careful what you leave in your car because apparently you can't even leave a charger anymore. Or Tic Tacs. When my house was uh, broken into one time before I got married, yeah. my granola bars were stolen. Really? So it was yeah. obviously a college student. Or somebody that had the munchies. <laughs> Depends where you live, huh? Anyway, crazy stuff, folks. See, this is the information you don't get everywhere else. You don't hear about the shopping robbery sprees where, yay, I'll take a little bit of everything and some dog treats to go. That's hour number two of the program. We'll take a break, and then we'll come back, continuing the journey to help you be the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Well. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Are you okay? I am. You sounded like never you were, better. Okay. I punched him in the gut as he was, was saying that. Yeah, he gut punched me right, strange. right when I was about to say something. Anyway, we got a great show for you. Welcome to uh, the show. We are going to be talking about maybe blowing up a myth for you. Would you think in your cute little head, do poor people eat more junk food than wealthier people? Who is more likely to chow down on the old junk food? I've heard it discussed because there's a a feeling that, you know, the the food that's less healthy for you is somehow more inexpensive. Therefore, if you're poorer, you could afford it. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's there's pizzas that are more inexpensive, there's Fast food's more inexpensive. Uh, if you go through the the grocery store, usually if you try to eat healthier, it seems like you're spending more. Mm-hmm. But apparently, but then you read other research and it says it's even. We've had people on yeah, the show saying yeah. it's really not that much of a difference when it comes to eating healthy versus eating you know boxed food. And so, but there is this idea out there that. If you're poor, you're going to just eat more junk. In fact, we've had people on the show talk about the fact that in poorer neighborhoods, they don't tend to have uh, like a grocery store. They don't have a mm-hmm. Whole Foods market in a poor neighborhood. Um, they tend to have just like you a Seven Eleven, like a Seven Eleven store. Yeah. But one of the things we're finding out, and our, our researcher that'll be talking to us in just a few moments about this, um, is going to blow up the myth of, uh, quite a bit because junk food um, is expensive. The average trip hmm. to, you know, a, a fast food restaurant is about $8. The so, average? Mm-hmm. So that would be for a family uh, that only makes $16,000 a year, would that would can they afford $44 worth of food at mm. fast food restaurants? And the reality is they can't. So you'll be amazed who actually is eating more of the junk food. It's probably not the poor people. Really? Huh. According to our next guest. It's, uh, it's pretty much everybody. The rich are eating just as much as the poor, but the poor are eating significantly less than the middle class and the wealthy. Okay, hmm. but you got to admit, poor, the poor cannot really afford to buy anything at Whole Foods. Well, ex- well Few of the wealthy can. Well, yeah, I think there's very few on this earth that can really afford it. <laughs> Because <laughs> so many of us are living paycheck to paycheck. But in the end, it might be the poor would maybe would go instead and buy a loaf of bread and peanut butter. And that would be their lunch. Hmm. Not such junk food. That's a staple. Those are peanuts. That was my breakfast. So we'll get to that interesting topic. I was like, that was very specific. That was very specific. That's because I just had that this morning. Anyway, her research focuses on poverty, welfare programs. And if we could just blow up the, the idea, because there are some states now that are trying to make it harder for in poorer communities to put fast food restaurants. Because they're so sure that these people will then just go waste all their money on fast food. And she's going to debunk the myth. Interesting stuff there. Plus, we'll get to some um, some other interesting stories, including the Rogaine bandit. Strikes again. Strikes again. Sure, great publicity for Rogaine. But there's a bald guy running around looting stores of their Rogaine. And we wanted to alert you to that. Uh, and, and we'll tell you the story about all that fun. So that's straight ahead. Of course, we'll be visiting with the good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. Also, of course, our hero of the day. 
We always like to highlight a hero story, and our hero today will be an eight-year-old uh, named for his heroic a- uh, actions during the tornadoes in uh, April. Pretty cool. There's always a hero story out there, and it, uh, it never ends. So we'll get to all of that fun. But first, we begin with the national headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? A Wall Street Journal investigation published Tuesday revealed that Google has a track record of financing research papers that then surfaced to defend itself, in some cases in potential legal battles. Google has paid professors whose papers, for instance, declare that the collection of consumer data was a fair exchange for its free services, that the company didn't use its market dominance to improperly steer users to Google's commercial sites or its advertisers, and that it hasn't unfairly quashed competitors. Mm. Right? Yeah. These are papers that they've funded that they've got. Like, well, this guy wrote a paper after paying him to write the paper. Uh, Several papers argued that Google's search engine should be allowed to link to books and other intellectual properties that the authors and publishers say they should be paid for. Since 2009, Google has funded an estimated 100 papers on public policy matters, the journal reports. The tech giant has paid academic researchers stipends of $5,000 to $400,000 and even read over papers before they were published, offering up suggestions. At some points, Google officials dreamed up wish lists of academic papers that included working titles, abstracts, and budgets for each proposed paper. When they search for willing authors, they're out there looking for them, yeah. they kind of pitch these ideas. That's so interesting. And they, they're able to set it yeah. up so they can reference things in the future and say, look, this guy thinks that we're right. Right, yeah. We, we There it is. It, but... Thanks, Google. Yeah. So what does that do to the whole credibility of it's, such... See, this is why people don't... This is why Europe is... They're going to find Google out of... Into extinction. It looks like. We don't... They don't trust it. They have too much power that they can set up even their own rules. They can set up their own experts. They can actually set up the facts. Right. Once you own the facts... You own the history. You own everything. World domination. Interesting stuff. Cyberbullying continues to be a major problem. In fact, 4 in 10 U.S. adults, 41%, say they've been harassed online. According to a new study from the Pew Research Center, online abuse is as rampant as ever, despite efforts by major tech companies like Facebook and Twitter to cut back on trolling and uh, bullying. The study, which was conducted among 4,000 U.S. adults, revealed that name-calling and embarrassment as the most common forms of online harassment. Among those who have been harassed, about 18% of U.S. adults say they have been the target of severe behavior such as physical threats, stalking, and sexual harassment. About 66% say they've witnessed harassing behavior online, not surprising since much of the bad conduct occurs on public social media platforms. Many survey respondents cited damaging effects as a result of harassment, including mental and emotional distress. More than a quarter of U.S. adults have decided not to post something online after seeing others being harassed. Excellent. Interesting. So interesting stuff as you're trying to figure out Harassment, are, are, are the steps being taken? Are they having any effect? It may not be hmm. helping at all. Yeah. Uh, the newest list of the most stolen cars in America. Oh, boy. Oh any, boy. any guesses? It's called the Hot Wheels Report. Well, I would say Honda Accords, which are tend to be always on that list. That's number one. Okay, so the Honda Accord, I would go 50, with... 50,000 of those were stolen. See, you got to love that if you're Honda. In 2016. I mean, yeah. if your car is the most stolen car, then... You could see how they wouldn't like it, too, at the same time. Well, but people keep buying them, and then right. they're stolen, and then they need to be replaced. Right. And it's just all good for business. Uh, I'm going to bet another one would probably be like like brand-name cars, like a Lexus, nope. uh, Mercedes. Nope. Okay. I'm going to then go with a 
The Prius. No. No. <laughs> Nobody wants a Prius. A Tesla. No. Okay. So it's not going to be based on income or uh, – okay. How about like a Nissan Maxima? No. How about a Volkswagen Passat? No. The Edsel? No. How about the uh, horse and carriage? No. The, town, though, and, the even, town and country? No, not the town and country. A minivan. So, minivans. Honda Accord, number one. Yeah. Honda Civic, Civic of number course, two. Yeah. They had 49,000. Oh, Honda. So 50,000 Honda Accords, 49,000 Honda Civics. Ford pickup, full size. Okay. Was number three, 32,000. Chevy pickup, full size. Oh, really? 31. And a Toyota Camry, 16,000, number five. So <gasps> Toyota. Yeah, be careful. So I, own a, I own a Toyota Camry. Be careful. Honda has cornered the hot car market. I just want to go make sure it's still there. No, it's there. I saw it. Okay. We're we're okay here. It's Provo. Yours isn't isn't a Camry. It's a Solara. It's a Camry Solara. It's it's a beautiful car. By the way, your car is always clean. How do you do that? I think it's just the paint color. Yeah. Because it's really not clean, but it always looks clean. Terry's car looks filthy. Always. Because it's dark. <laughs> My yeah. car looks filthy. Well, I wash too. it. It's good for about six hours. Then you're like, ah, I drove to work covering bugs. Interesting. Okay. Surprisingly, it says um, it's not the most recent models that get lifted. Thieves prefer older pre-smart key production models. Yeah. yeah. And then you just stick that screwdriver yeah. in. So the, the most popular is the 1998 Honda Civic. Really? Yeah. Ah, that was one year before my old car. Because okay. it doesn't have any of the anti-theft smart. It's just a key. So you just pop the lock and go. By the way, they're great cars. And if you're going to steal a car, you want it to be a dependable car. Right. I had That's a why. 93 uh, Honda Accord. Emphasis on the had. Mm. Until someone stole it? No, I sold it. Okay. And finally, uh, in Los Angeles, there's a uh, a new dessert. What? That is is causing some stir, if mm. you will. Ice cream stuffed donuts. Mm. What's the problem? There's no problem. It's just causing, you know, excitement. So they're wanting to I'm talk excited. About it. It's at a place called the B Sweet Dessert Bar mm. and they have donuts and in the donut is So in the center? Your choice of ice cream. So in the little ring of the donut you place ice cream? Or do you inject the donut? With said, <gasps> I believe they it's, do. This. It like, looks like it's a sandwich. Like it's cut in it's half. It's like fried ice cream, really. And then you drop the ice cream in the middle. Holy cow! That looks like heaven. No, it could be. This is the the picture I'm showing Matt right now is as purple ice cream. It, it could be any ice but cream, but it kind of looks like a like a turnover, like a pie. Yeah. But the pie, instead of having uh, you know chicken gravy, it has ice cream. Or a, I, I believe they make it a donut without the hole, right? Oh, mommy! So that's... they leave the hole in, which means more donut, mm-hmm. and then they stuff it with ice cream. Once again, uh, California on the cutting edge of destroying lives. Now, apparently, online you can find recipes for this, but I mean, what's the recipe? A donut? You cut it in half? No, but like that's like that looks like probably like blueberry oh, ice yeah. cream or something. They have some. Organic, so it's like a pie. It tastes like blueberry pie. Non-GMO. So they have Hollywood. They have Hollywood. They have Venice Beach. Right. And now they have ice cream and ice cream donuts. Donuts. They're not trying to destroy people's lives with these desserts. They're doing that alone with the smog. But this is to enrich people's lives. Mm. Gotta love it. Man, I'm going to I'm going to California. Where is that? Hollywood? Where'd you say? Los Angeles. Oh, Los Angeles. Yeah. That's like half of California. Totally. 
You ask somebody where they're from. Oh, I'm from L.A. Oh, yeah. Where are you really from? Oh, you know, San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) The greater San Diego area. Hey, is it time to take a sick day for mental health? Yes. Wow. That was easy. Okay. Okay. Okay, (laughs) Next. Uh, Apparently, it might be smart for you every once in a while to take your vacation and don't just save it all up for a rainy day, Hmm. but instead – Maybe take a couple hours off, a couple hours here, a couple hours there, and uh, because it, it helps. It improves your – it decreases your anxiety. It decreases your depression and it might even help just as much as medication. My Why wife not? does that. My wife will take a half day, just come home, hang out with the kids. It's such a good idea. Yeah. But the problem is if I went home early – I would never be able to nap like I do here at work. Right. Because my house is just crazy. You have a controlled situation at yeah. work. You can you can't, shut the door. You can't nap in your Tesla? I don't have a Tesla. No. Not That's me. what you're dreaming about. My new car. Napping. That's so true. My new car will be a Tesla. Please don't rip it off. But I'm not going to think about it because I made a mis- – I'm not going to say I made a mistake. But I overthought my last car. So um, just a little advice to everybody. Take a sick day. I felt like you underthought your last car. Oh, no. Because you never talked about that model of car and then I know, all of a sudden rolled no, in on a Monday saying, hey, I bought this car. I did. It was a big mistake. Okay. He it was an impulse You buy. didn't underthink it because when you weren't napping at work, you were surfing on the web for that. I spent three years looking for the car yeah, and no. then I spent two years having looked at every car of one type Right. and then I bought – a car I had never looked at. Because I purchased a car, ran up a ton of miles on said uh-huh. car, and yeah. then you, well, I finally got a car. Yeah. But you know why? I was like, it's wow. because I never took a mental health day. Right. If you took that mental health day. And because I had my gallbladder hmm. sucking at least 20% of my energy out of me. Well, it's more than that. Well, don't be rude. Sorry. You don't even know my gallbladder. <laughs> That was insensitive. That was. That's okay. We'll be fine. We'll take a break. When we come back, folks, we will be talking junk food. Is it really that poor people eat more junk food than wealthier Americans? Or is that just a myth? And now are communities and governments fighting against the poor because of that myth? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, giving you the insight you need to live a healthier life. often do you eat fast food? Well, Dr. Patricia Smith wanted to know if poor people eat more junk food uh, than wealthier Americans, and she is joining us today to talk about her results. Patricia Smith is a PhD in, and professor of economics at the University of Michigan, Dearden, and is here to talk to us about uh, maybe blowing up some myths about junk food and the poor and the wealthy. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for being with us today. You're quite welcome. Talk to us about what you found out. Do poor people eat more junk food and fast food than the rest of the country? The short answer is no, they don't. They don't. <laughs> and yet we're building policies. I mean, there's certain cities that are making it so in, in, in lower economic areas they can't, they, they, they can't have fast food restaurants. Is, is, this, is this is a new idea? Nobody's done this research before? Um, no, uh, other people have looked at this. Um, I'm only aware of Los Angeles actually passing a law to try to restrict 
the construction of fast food restaurants in low income neighborhoods. Hmm. Is um, it well, so, so what, yeah, where does this in come designing from? Any policy we need to know the truth and the truth is that the poor people don't eat fast food more than others. <laughs> That really is good to know. And I guess, too, I mean, we, we sit there. We, we've had people on the show talk about the fact that in a lot of uh, lower economic uh, areas, there, there, aren't, there aren't a lot of grocery stores. There aren't healthy f- food options and choices, plus the finances of it all. But in reality, your data is showing, I guess, middle class Americans are, and, and wealthier Americans are, are just as likely to eat health or junk food as anyone else. Right. If we look at it, we lined people up in our sample from the poorest to the wealthiest. And when we looked at the poorest 10%, uh, about 80% of them said, yeah, we ate fast, fast food in the last week. And when we look at the richest, it was about 75%. And then the middle class, it was 85%. So, uh, you know, some people expected that we'd get the highest percent with the poor. And then as income and wealth rose, we'd get lower and lower percents. And that isn't what happened. Yeah. So in, in reality, it's um, this this seems to be pretty interesting insight. It doesn't mean that the poor aren't eating junk food, but it's expensive. Right. And one of the things that uh, was cited in an article is is how expensive it is to eat out. Yeah, it's, we're all eating out a lot. And fast food is relatively cheap only when you compare it to a very nice restaurant. Right. And if you're poor, it, you know, eating out is, even at a fast food restaurant, is going to take up a, a fair amount of your income. Uh, what we found tended to matter more than your wealth or your income was, were you working a lot of hours? So it looks to us like convenience is a really uh, compelling reason why everybody's eating fast food. Interesting. Yeah, because if you're working a lot of hours, you also probably are chasing the dime, right? You're chasing the money and you don't have the time, the convenient, the convenience is there. So let's just go grab a burger. Right. And it, it tastes good. It's fast. It's easy. And it's filling. <laughs> and I guess, does this apply? So that's kind of fast food. Does it apply to junk food as well? Um, you know, the candies, the cookies, Coke, did, did anything ah. come out in your research there? No, we only looked at uh, eating out at fast food restaurants. We did not look at grocery stores. What, when you think about it, um, in a way, it's it's this weird paradigm that we might think that poor people are just less controlled, less disciplined. And so, so why is it important that we gather this other data to blow up some of those myths? Well... The reason I sort of got into it is I have an interest in obesity. And in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, it was true that poor people had higher obesity rates than middle class and wealthy people. And one of the reasons proposed was, you know, poor nutrition and fast food in particular, that they were making poor food choices. And so we looked at one aspect of food choice, and that was eating fast food. Mm. And at least we could rule out that's not the poor weren't making any worse decisions than the rest of us in that regard. And so we don't think fast food is an explanation of why obesity rates vary by income level. Yeah. Is, so what do you see um, from, coming from your study? What, what are you hoping to have happen? What are you hoping to come out? Well, first I'm hoping that people will be less judgmental. Um, of what poor people are eating and trying to understand, at least in terms of fast food, they're just like the rest of us. Um, I'm hoping that people will form policies based more on fact, 
Um, I have a lot of doubts whether trying to restrict access to fast food in poor neighborhoods is really going to uh, do a lot of good. Mm. I mean, it might, but I don't, I don't see it changing the health inequalities that we observe in our nation. We do observe that poor people are less healthy, and then as we get more income, our health improves. We do see that, and it's worth trying to figure out how we can change that. You know, how can we make sure the poor are healthy and can realize their full potential like the rest of us. Absolutely. It actually seems, too, the one we need to really be worrying about would be the middle uh, class because about, um, I guess you describe the data for us. Where where are people consuming the very, the most fast food and um, where does that drop off to consuming less fast food? Okay. Well, first let me be clear that Our data are on people who are in their 40s and 50s, and they're members of the baby boom generation. Hmm. And so our results apply to that sort of age group. And we see the most fast food consumption sort of of in the lower middle class range. Lower middle class range. Right. And we, we, we do see the least fast food consumption among the wealthiest, but the differences are really, really small. You know, we did some simulations and we found that if we took the typical respondent, the the typical baby boomer, and we moved them from being in the poorest 10% of the population up to the richest 10%, the likelihood that they ate fast food would fall from 91% to only 85%. And the number of meals consumed in a three-week period would fall only from 5.1 to 4.6 meals. So it's not, these are not big differences. Yeah. And I guess I guess when we look at like the lower middle class uh, being the ones consuming the more, most fast food, and it, and it seems to be more out of convenience, and the mere fact that they're not packing a lunch, they're not doing that. What 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 would be some solutions just for the average Joe? I mean, why I I am a busy person, right? There's a reason I'm doing this. Um, what are the solutions to that? Okay, so in terms of individuals, you need to think about, it's helpful to think about what food choices are you making and why, just being more mindful about it. And are there really some healthy alternatives that aren't that much work, you know, to pack carrot sticks or whatever? Um, What sort of patterns are we setting up for our children? Are we supporting nutrition and cooking education in our classes, for example? We can't really uh, fight the the convenience attractiveness of fast food because we're working and we do want people to work. And so we need to figure out ways to make healthy foods more convenient, either on an individual level or on a national level. How can we design policies that would make healthy foods as easy and convenient as fast foods? Yeah, and I guess be sure not to, um, not to buy into stereotypes or myths, even if they may have had some bang 20, 30 years ago, Data changes. Yeah, the data has changed. And, um, you know, if you go to a fast food restaurant and they're trying out some healthy options, do you buy them? Hmm. They'll supply what we demand. Mm -hmm, Right. Do you support that? We can influence what's offered by what we purchase. We vote with our dollars. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? And when I when I was looking at your data as well, I mean, this obesity, it's a it's a it's a huge thing right now. And as we are trying to, I guess, figure out the sources, a lot of it is, is what you've been talking about. Do we support it? Do we support the policies 
to 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 fix it. I mean, and it, it's interesting because it would get down to zoning. It would get down to making certain communities more accessible to uh, you know better transit, better other things. Right. What can we do to make sure that everybody has good access to fresh foods? Are there, are there farmers markets? Is there transportation to grocery stores? Can we somehow um, give inducements to grocery stores to locate in low-income areas and areas that are poorly served by grocery stores currently? Hmm. Did anything in your research really surprise you? Did anything stand out as an aha? I was surprised by how little difference income and wealth made. I thought we'd see a bigger difference. Hmm. And I was also surprised that we looked at both income and wealth, which is what other studies hadn't done. Most previous studies only looked at income, which is, you know, your monthly paycheck rolling in. Yeah. And we were also, with this data, to look at wealth, which is the accumulation of all your assets, you know, property, etc. And with wealth, the sort of stereotype held up. You know, there was some decline in fast food consumption as people, we, as we moved into wealthier groups. But in income, it was the opposite. As we went from poor to middle class, fast food consumption rose a little bit. Hmm. It's interesting. So I was kind of surprised by that difference in those two measures of socioeconomic status. Yeah, it, it, you'd almost think, you know, having some money stored away and put away might make it so you're more inclined to go out and, and eat out more. But that may not always be the case. It, it might be fast food as a marker of social status. Hmm. I'd be interested in talking to some of the sociologists and anthropologists about this. Yeah. And it's interesting. And then, yeah, certain brands might even become even a bigger part of your socioeconomic status as well. It was also interesting to me that the one reason why some of maybe the, the, the lower economic strata may not be eating out as much is I didn't realize the average fast food meal was about $8 a meal. Yeah, if you have a complete meal, you know. Combo. Uh, right, a combination, you know, a drink, a main dish, a side like fries, it can add up on average, yeah. Yeah. And then and, do, is it too, I mean, fast food, it seems like different. Some of the sit-down restaurants, the portion sizes end up being so big, you're always taking more home. So you seem to, you feel like you're maybe getting a bang for your buck. I could see how that would lead to obesity. But um, an $8 meal and not necessarily a huge meal but not necessarily healthy either. So do you think there is a correlation then just because of the the cheapness, the convenience of the food, that it is one of the big drivers for the obesity crisis? There's quite a few studies that show a consistent association between frequent fast food consumption and weight. Hmm. And so fast food is one of the contributors. Um, It's one of those problems that has many causes. Yeah. And and fast food is one one of the many. Yeah. It's it's real, isn't it? Um anything else Patricia before we wrap up? Like what would you say to the rest of us I guess about um taking on the obesity crisis in our own life in our own world? Being more mindful of what you eat and how you teach your children to eat and physical activity is also part of the issue as well. Yeah. Are we getting, you know, it's the same old story that people have been told for ages, you know, eat proper nutrition, get proper exercise, adequate sleep also helps. Yeah. Which again, if you're out there fighting for, to live and fighting to survive, uh, sleep is one thing that may, you may give up sometimes. And, um, 
exercise. Just got to keep driving the truck. Got to keep pushing the, but eventually you'll pay. That's true. Hmm. So uh, if you have people that are working two or three jobs, we need to cut them some slack and make life easier for them in terms of feeding themselves and their family. Absolutely. Either at an individual level in terms of what things we donate to food banks or at a civic level in terms of what policies that we support. Absolutely. Well done. We appreciate your time. Dr. Patricia Smith, again, a professor of economics at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, helping us understand, uh, blowing up the myth. It's not the poor people that are eating out, folks, and uh, eating the junk food. Tends to be middle class, lower economic, lower middle class, but uh, really a really strong representation in every stratus of of, uh, the economic stratus. So stick with us. Interesting interesting insights. And really, it's about your life, isn't it? It's about your choices. We'll take a break, come back, continue the journey right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. As we've been uh, talking about junk food, Terry found a pretty interesting uh, a little uh, research, I guess, on... It's in Australia. Junk. Food. And they're concerned about how food that is unhealthy is marketed to kids. Yeah. They did a survey of 186 packaged foods using cartoons to attract kids, and they found that half are classified as unhealthy because they contain either too much sugar, fat, or salt. Okay, really? So Half of them? Half of them with a cartoon character on it are too high in fat, sugar, or salt. Wow. So use a cartoon, bank on the fact that half of them your kids shouldn't be eating. So now there are calls in uh, this area of Australia for uh, cartoon characters to be removed from junk food packaging. So you think of the cereal aisle, mm-hmm. right? you got cartoon characters – they're all like waist high, of course, because right. they want them right in the kid's face. But all those cartoon characters on all those products, they've created marketing schemes, and some of them are like years and years old, and Australia wants them taken away. And they have some of the cereals that we sell here in the U.S. Right. In Australia. And so it's like Toucan Sam, you're gone. Gone. Right. The Trick Rabbit, nope, can't have you. You know, it's so, like, I don't think they're going to do that, but that's what they want to do, or some groups are calling for. So... <laughs> So instead, though, um, what would you? What would these companies put on the label? I don't, I don't know. It would probably be whatever would be on the adult equivalent, which is like the cereal or yeah. Uh, you know, I was as we were just talking. Ninety percent of kids' snack bars, ninety percent or twenty six out of the thirty products were deemed unhealthy. Yeah, you can't. Sorry. So you can't have the cartoon character. So on a, on a, on a snack bar, you'd have like what? Like a, a, a mountain scene or yeah. some sort of nature type thing? What was it's that? healthy, right? Who was that actor that had the mustache that always did the brand commercials? Oh, Wilford, Wilford Brimley. Brimley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'd have to have like Wilford Brimley on your yeah. kid's snack bar. I don't, I don't think it's going to sell. <laughs> so I don't know. But just there's that concern. And, you know, I see some of that where – the, the whole reason my child wants a specific product is yeah. because that has a cartoon Spider-Man. character. Or right now, he's really into his Minions fruit snacks. 
Really? But see, right. you wonder if the Minions fruit snacks – aren't those fruit snacks, by the way, made up of chopped Minions? No, they're just sugar. Okay. Like everything else. <laughs> but so it, maybe there needs to be like a, a deal where they have to hit a certain threshold before they can then use the image of a minion. Or the word fruit. A minimum ga- <laughs> daily allowance. Yeah. Like maybe your fruit snack would have to include a fruit. Of some kind. Not just be in the shape of, mm-hmm. which is how... Or the color of. Yeah. And so my wife, she bought them because Minions was on the box. Right, right. But the ones we normally get just have fruit on the box. And my son was like, no, this is better. They have the... You know, and the whole reason is that marketing. But man, those... Have you ever tasted the Wilford Brimley wafers? Oh, no. Oh, to die for. So I think those boxes, instead of saying made from real fruit, I think it says inspired by real fruit. Yeah. <laughs> As almost seen in nature... We thought of fruit. Well, we made this up. Yeah, based on wow. a real fruit. It's a it's an interesting thing. At fifty percent, don't are, are are really unhealthy because of salt, sugar, or and, fat, and fat. Hmm. Well, I guess we knew that. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, now we have numbers. Well, now well, at what least they'll Australia do, they'll just have to make up their own iconic image. Yeah, you know, like tricks. But you can't use a cartoon. Kids, yeah, but you can't and, use a cartoon. Yeah, but tricks is oh you can't use a caricature. Yeah, even if it's oh I was thinking you couldn't use like a, a pop culture cartoon. No, any like like the tricks rabbit is ah, just a marketing. You'd have to actually have a real rabbit or yeah or something of that nature. So they'd have to change all this marketing and packaging. Good, but would I it feed our kids healthier? Not necessarily because you're buying your kid sugar, right? I mean, you you <sighs> you as a parent, this is another situation where it's like. The problem isn't the box. The problem oh, is boy. the parent buying the sugar. You're blaming the parents for their yeah, child They're responsible obesity. for the kid, right? Yeah. Now I bet you're going to tell us that honey bunches of oats is not healthy for you. Probably not. But there, there are oats in it, and right. there are bunches of them. And bunches of honey and honey. other sugar and stuff. In the, but that, that's really the thing is we're, we're pushing responsibility off on this company – Who's just trying to sell a product? Granted, they're manipulating your child. Well, and they are—they are the spawn of darkness. But you're the parent <laughs> who buys the product. See, that's what our previous guest was saying. Vote with your pocketbook. Yeah, just I say, thought it was vote with your mouth. Well, isn't that it? I think it's vote with your. Oh, okay. Because you, you, at some point, I guess we can always blame the parents. Yeah, but it would be nice that this—this this is an important study. Fifty percent. I would never think fifty percent. I mean, I could see like 30%, 20%, but 50% are bad for your health. No, this isn't Australia. I mean, they eat Vegemite, so I'm not not sure if the taste and the the types of food transfer to the U.S. well. You ever had Vegemite? Uh, No. Oh. Why? It it sounds yummy. No. (laughs) Veggie, like it, might. Like a stalagmite. Read up about it. It, It's kind of – I don't know why they – they consume the product, but apparently people like it. Yeah, I would, no. Would you rather have veggie mite or veggie uh, tight? What's veggie tight? Veggie tight's a it's a veggie substitute that you eat and then it holds your body really tight. I would have to look into it more. It sounds scary. It sounds like glue. It sounds painful, doesn't it? A, a fruit based glue product. No, it's all natural. So yeah, I think there's some opportunities for choice. If the parents can just look into it. Yeah. You know exactly who's to blame. The mother and the father. Yeah. yeah. Just sure. blame mom and dad. Yeah, they knew. Yeah. As you walk into the sugar factory. <laughs> See, but even Oompa Loompas couldn't be on cereal boxes. No. 
I would never have bought one as a child because every time they were on the screen, I would run screaming out of the room. What was it? Terrified. Was it their fake tan? I think so. Was the it? The orange faces just really the orange faces me out. and then the really bright hair color that threw you. And maybe the fact that they seemed to take glee in uh, disposing of those children. Yeah. Or maybe that was Gene Wilder. He did take glee. May he rest in peace. Stop. Don't. Come back. <laughs> and by oh, the way, yeah. to finish off the story, the Australian Food and Grocery Council says parents also have control over what they feed their children. Yeah. I'd well, hope so. Well, yeah, but. You don't know my kids. Pe- people like to go ahead and legislate things more than uh, just sure. take responsibility. That's a good point. So. Thank you. Uh, a little, uh, a, a little um, help from our libertarian. What? Very south. Is that who I am? No. Just okay. playing that role today. It's like, wow. We'll take a break. When we come back, our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation, they'll be up telling us what's coming on their show in just a few minutes. Stick with us. It's that time, friends. Time to journey down just one flight of stairs to another studio, a studio far, far away, uh, with two incredibly talented gentlemen. Spencer and Jerem are joining us from BYU Sports Nation to tell us about what's coming up on their show today. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matthew. Star Wars, nothing <laughs> but Star Wars. Great job. You know what that reminded me of? I just saw last night. I don't want to brag. Um, but you are. But here we go. Humble brag. Humble, Humble brag. brag. I just spent. Uh, I just watched Donnie and Maria Osmond in concert last night. Oh, nice! Mm-hmm. They came. They came locally. Yeah, they're here. They were here in town for a couple of days. Oh, I was going to say, wow, that was a quick trip home from Las oh, Vegas. Oh, I've been driving all night. <laughs> but you know, when you get a chance to see the Osmonds, you're like, gotta get there. It was how, a great show. Was it? it was amazing. That's great. They're nearing sixty, and they're on yeah. fuego. They are incredible. Did you just? Did you just say they are on fuego? Uh huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That works, too. I could smell smoke. They're on fuego. But really, they're in great shape. They've got some incredible pipes. These They have been at it uh, since Marie Osmond was three years old. Donnie, I think, was like five or something. That's a long time. It's a long – five decades. Wow. Can you guys imagine doing your job for five decades? Mm, hopefully. Yeah, I'm trying to right now, and I hope that I'm in that scenario. Yeah. Well, you guys, I, I saw you walk by today, Spence. You're looking, you're looking great. Hey, thank you, tan, man. Tan. You're sporting a tan, and thank you got your blues on today. I do have my blue on today. I'm so happy that I get to walk past your window. I know. Every day. It's almost like you're you're running so late you don't even think about us. <laughs> but there's always time to look at you and yeah. smile and wave, right? Yeah. The because thing is, isn't it about time? time. Oh, way too early. <laughs> It's about time. Jeremy always stops and then rubs his face on the glass, but you never stop and rub your face. Maybe I need to do that. Try it. I mean, would you maybe, like that better? Well, maybe that'll make him clean this window. Would that take our friendship to the next level? Totally. Okay. Hey, did you guys? There was this game thing last night. Uh, this All Star game. Did you guys watch there that? There were All Stars in it. Oh yeah. yes. There's... And uh, now Jeremy would like to step up on his soapbox and oh, talk here we go. about. Well, third Mariner in history it's to the, win the MVP in the All-Star Oh, it's the Mariners go there. don't make the playoffs, this is probably the highlight of the season. Uh, Robinson Cano. Yeah. Don't you know. Don't you know, Home Cano. Home run in the 10th, 
for the win. Yes. Killed it. I didn't know you were a big – I mean, I, I, I guess I should have known you were a Mariners fan. I'm a Mariners fan. I am. But I'm not ashamed. Are they are – they, is this All-Star game worth it? I mean, they were playing for the. They're yes. playing for the where the where they play the final World Series game, right? They are not. Okay. Oh, they're uh, not. Last year was the last year of that. Oh. Uh, so last night was just for kicks and gigs. Uh, kicks and giggles, which I actually prefer. In yeah, baseball. it was still intense. It, like, was. it was. It was a fun, intense game. You want it to be fun, like it's an exhibition. Mm-hmm. It, it mattereth not, you know. Ooh. So it was. It was fun. The NBA All Star Game. It's fun, but not really. They don't play defense, dunks and threes, and it's like 140 to 138. Yeah, I didn't see one dunk Yeah, uh, in this MLB game. The Pro Bowl in football is terrible because no one wants to get hurt. Right. It's it's a good all-star game. Yeah. The, now, so I think that MLS does it the best. Why? The MLS all-stars are, are playing Real Madrid. Mm. That's a fun matchup. That's a super the fun. The best from the league versus maybe the best team in the world. That so is how, how would baseball do that, though? It doesn't translate the same way, but wouldn't it be fun if basketball, it was like foreigners versus Americans mm. or something? All-out Ryder Cup or and something? Y- and you switch it up every other year, like one year you're playing you mix it, it. Yeah. It's somewhere in Europe, and then the next year you're playing Oh, that is States. a cool idea. No, we invented – no, we just played here. <laughs> Although nah. a Canadian did invent basketball. Well, who invented golf? Yet we play the Ryder Cup in the United States, right? Every other year or every other time, I should, we should say. Just, everyone should speak English. And we should do everything in the U.S. I'm just kidding. Can we just, just can we just all... really get the Olympics to L.A. already? Can we take this moment and just remember who invented Gator Ball? That was the Matt Townsend. That was right. Uh, just a can man we, among other men. Can we, and I don't know if you notice it, but they're already retrofitting BYU Stadium for Gator Ball. They're putting drains in so you can drain the field when we put the Crocs in there and the Gators. Yeah, that's going to be important. It's going to be super good. Plus, it's heated. Hey, um, <laughs> this is a Powerade school. I just want to remind everybody. Oh, is it? Okay, Powerade. Yeah, sorry. Hey, uh, what um, what what are you what are you guys going to talk about on your show? It's never too early to discuss. July twelfth is a perfect day for NCAA tournament expectations for BYU basketball. Mm, Cougars got why? their brand new non conference schedule yesterday. Ah, is it enough to impress the selection committee? Is there enough there? Because as of the last two days, we know BYU's roster and we know all the teams BYU plays. So will BYU make the NCAA tournament? We'll discuss that. Oh, man. Excellent discussion. July 12th. Let's go. Tim Lacombe will join us, associate head coach. He's the guy that puts the schedule together. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about Utah coming to Provo. We'll talk about the other sexy games on there. Wow. Is it good enough to have the strength of schedule to get you into the tournament? Plus my latest 10 and 10. That is 10 top 10 lists in 10 weeks about BYU football opponents. Today we look at the top 10 running backs BYU will face wow. in 2017. Holy we don't believe cow. in the dog days, Matt. If no, people no. want to hide under that umbrella, yeah. fine. Ain't no What's dog this? days up in we here! We are bringing it, man. <laughs> it's a Wednesday, for crying out loud, in the middle of July, and we don't care. Holy cow. Our ball just walked in. It's like, what dog days? Ain't no dog days! <laughs> we got football, we got basketball. Alexis is going to win the title! Yeah, that was... Wow! I'm pumped! I am so pumped. They've unleashed the Kraken, folks. BYU Sports Nation, it's five, four and a half minutes away. Boy, they are pumped up, I tell you. It's hard. It's hard to get that excited in the dog days of summer, but they don't have it here at BYU. Okay, you're not going to want to miss it. Hey, uh, we've been leading with this story. Uh, It's an important one. If you live in Dearborn, Michigan, 
really you, you gotta you gotta pay attention to this one. Okay, police in uh, suburban Detroit uh, are no longer they're on the search for a man. Okay, but they're not looking everywhere. They are going to now skip barber shops because the man they're looking for has uh, is responsible for stealing hair growth product. The guy is bald. Dearborn police have security video of the bald man stealing Rogaine from Walgreens stores on June 22nd. Investigators say the man put seven boxes of Rogaine in a bag and then he dashed. Nothing worse than a Rogaine dasher. I mean, how many times have I told you that? At least twice. (laughs) Uh, By the way, the bandit, the Rogaine bandit's what we're calling him. He was wearing a T-shirt that said Air Force Dad. Hmm? And uh, police chief Ron Haddad said it's not the most hair-raising crime. <laughs> Ron. Uh, but he wants the public's help. Police say the bald man could strike again because it takes many months of consistent use of Rogaine to grow any hair. So he's only really got maybe, I don't know, two or three months worth. The man's going to need two or three Rogaine heists in order to uh, get ahead of this game. See, we need more movies about hair heists. Have you ever seen a hair heist? Um, I I don't want to talk about it. Okay. I mean, I've, I've seen hair hijackings. Mm. Like just, somebody stealing a toupee. Well, right just, off of somebody's yeah. head. You know, maybe a quick, a quick like flash burn of a, a lot of up? hair. A hair up. Give me your toupee. Drop your locks. (laughs) You are under arrest. No. Anyway, watch out for the guy. Uh, He'll be bald, apparently in the Air Force, and a dad. It could be any, you know, 50% of the middle-aged men out there. Mm -hmm. Check your Air Force bases. Check those statistics, because I don't know if it's actually 50%. He's the guy that'll have, like, a rash on his head. Because he's been working the cream in <laughs> so well. Uh, anyways, you know, we also like to always end with a hero story to bring you some hope, some joy. Our hero this year or this day is an eight-year-old boy uh, named Hero for his actions during the April 29 tornadoes. A few weeks ago, eight-year-old um, boy was named to East Texas Hero because of his uh, exercising his incredible uh, will and courage. Zachary Cousin rescued his 10-year-old brother and 10-month-old sister from the family's vehicle after it was picked up during a storm. Imagine how terrifying. He said, our state was and country will be a better place if we have more people like Zachary Cousin. That just went in and did what he had to do without thinking about it, said State Representative Cole Hefner. Cousin was honored by Hefner in the city of Winsboro. He received two proclamations and a state flag that flew over the Texas Capitol in his honor. He is a hero in our family. He's a real hero, said his mom, Holly Cousin. The vehicle, uh, remember, was flipped over because of the storm. It was, she said it was like being in the worst roller coaster you've ever been in. And Zachary was able to get out and then get his his ten month old ten year old brother out, ten month old sister out, saved him. Cool stuff. Zachary Cousin is his name. He's the hero of the day. That's uh, a little hope right there, and hope abounds if you just look for it. That's why we do the show, to help you see the good in the world and be the good in the world. We'll be back again tomorrow, 9 to noon Eastern time, to help you along your journey here in life. Um, until then, take care of each other. Make sure you watch out for those that need the help. 
And uh, let's just love one another, for heaven's sakes. We'll, we're out. We'll be back tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation is up next.